are y'all doing? Pretty good. It's a beautiful 60 degree and sunny day, and David and I are in a windowless, uh, airtight closet recording nice. this episode. How nice. about you? Well, I'm in the lovely um, lounge um, at uh, here at North Star Base. Um, and God, yeah, I really uh, miss. I really miss being in that space. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty windowy, and uh, yeah, uh, currently Karma is uh, right under the seedling bench that I uh, have all of my flats um, sprouting seedlings, Aww. and she is just uh, sleeping in a sunbeam. And so, very chill vibes. It's like that uh, that chilled cow uh, lo-fi hip-hop radio with the uh, the cat in the window and the t- writing on the same page, constantly turning it. Aww. So, we're very lucky to have uh, a special interview today. We're going to be talking with Yasha Levine, who, you, if you're a true and on listener, you might have heard the episode that he did with them. But he's the author of the 2018 book, Surveillance Valley. And he's also currently writing an investigative newsletter called Immigrants as a Weapon, which you can subscribe to on Substack, and we will link to that in the show notes. So without further ado, here is our interview with Yasha Levine. Man, this COVID stuff is pretty nuts. I mean, people you know who live on the street are just having it really rough. I mean, God, yes. it's like everything is just shut down. I mean, I mean, I was kind of, I kind of got a bit emotional today having to deal with it because it just, it just makes you realize like, just how completely helpless everybody is. Everyone is so scared. No one wants to deal with them, right? No one wants to deal with anybody who lives on the street or even obviously, you know, people are avoiding each other. Like the level of empathy has gone completely down, you know? Wait, what are you talking about? I, I saw a bunch of hotel owners that had these big sky high rises that were yeah, making full of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're making pixel art uh, with the uh, the empty rooms, keeping them lit <laughs> through the night, you know, with a heart. Like I don't know that, if, if that is an empathy. <laughs> no, no, no. It's exactly, and 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 they're also doing like this kind of uh, Tetris uh, outdoor Tetris with the uh, uh, stacking all these people, you know, just in, in solidarity with the homeless people. They're just putting them in in in, um, in Las Vegas in a parking lot. It was really cool. I, yeah, really cool art. I saw pictures coming out of LA that was just like homeless people in a parking lot lying six feet away from each other because there were no facilities for them to sleep in. Uh, I thought that was in Las Vegas. Was it in Vegas? I think there was another one in San Francisco too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. LA is actually one of the few places that's doing an okay job. They spent a couple million dollars on RVs. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they put people in RVs. It's probably, I'm sure it's not everybody. Well, I mean, there are, there are RVs for coronavirus uh, victims. I mean, or like patients, Yeah. but like in terms of the homeless population, um, I mean, I think they, they're like, you know, like they're taking over gymnasiums and stuff, but it's just like, there's no, there, there's no protective gear. Obviously they're, they're like cramped right. spaces. Yeah. These like cots are very close to each other. I'm yeah. not sure. I don't, I don't actually think that too many people are even going uh, um, into these. I mean, because again, it's so strict. Everything is so just ridiculously strict in America. Like you're a homeless person. So now you have to, you can't like, you have to go in there with, you know, these certain belongings. You know, everyone has, a lot of people have pets. Here's companions, you know, uh, and like you can't take them. So people don't go. It's just, it's, it's just the, I mean, and I, to be honest, I would rather be on the street rather than it to be in like a, in a, in a, in a closed, um, gymnasium you know sure, crammed yeah, it's, together it's, it's like so crowded you can that yeah, yeah you could you're more likely to get it in there than, than out there there was an interview with a a, a a homeless person in seattle that said the exact same thing that was like i like they opened up shelters and i don't want to go to any of them because they're they're like hot boxes like i'm not going to go into that yeah and like there's a protest here actually happening tonight um today in a couple hours 
targeting uh, the mayor of uh, L.A., the, uh, Eric uh, Garcetti, because, yeah, they're not they're, I mean, L.A. is really regressive. I mean, it's actually kind of shocking. I mean, they haven't done a single thing like they didn't even pass a uh, there's no uh, eviction moratorium. I mean, there was a statewide eviction moratorium that kicked in, but the, the city like basically voted it down. Um, there are no there's no obviously any kind of rent relief of any kind. I mean, uh, there's almost no help for the homeless for the homeless uh, community. Uh, you know, there are all these, uh, of course, like, you know, I mean, it's just hotels, the whole city is full of hotels that are just empty right now. And these things aren't being used. So it's just, it's, it's, it's pretty shocking uh, what kind of an action there is in the city and like, like the second major city in America. Uh, and like, meanwhile, there's like this one newspaper and they're like laying people off, you know, LA times. It's pretty, it's yeah, pretty it's crazy. Yeah. And everyone's so atomized here. That I don't think anyone even knows what's going on. People aren't really talking to each other. It's just, it's such a weird place to be. Um, nice to be isolated here because it's just, it's, it's pleasant. It's a lot more pleasant and a lot safer because everyone's already self-isolated in, in, in the suburbs. So Yasha, you, you, so you have a book in 2018 called Surveillance Valley and it kind of goes beyond the normal or usual, uh, internet origin story that, you know, most of us know that it, the, the, the beginning of the internet started with ARPA, you know, it was a military project. Um, but you say it hasn't really even moved that far away from being a military project. In fact, you you say it very much still is. Like, and even uh, technologies like Tor, Bitcoin, and Signal are deeply intertwined in the military-industrial po- complex. Could you elaborate on that? Why why are all of the services that we know and love and have all these cutesy uh, branding around them? Like, how how are they? Even acting, maybe you you suggest as like as like honeypots to like get oh, us yeah. to give give them all of our information. I mean, yeah, it's it's funny because okay, so I wrote the book and I was writing the book, you know, from like 2016, 17, and it was published in two thousand eighteen, in the beginning of two thousand eighteen. I mean, and a lot has changed, right? Uh, I mean, I, just ideologically, and, and I think the way that people view the internet in, in in these last few years, especially after Trump was elected. So what people. Um, you know, all the, the kind of the utopian image and sort of the cutesy branding that Google had, that Facebook had, the sort of community-oriented ideology around it, right? Um, like, that's, that really faded into, after 2016. And in 2017, you know, Facebook and Google, and especially in 2018, found themselves under attack because they were seen as destroying democracy, right? Uh, helping elect Donald Trump. Um, and spreading disinformation, and you know, there's a, this weird twist to it because they they were accused of basically helping a foreign government uh, help elect Donald Trump by spreading dangerous memes about you know Bernie Sanders and all this stuff. But just generally, um, you know, people's view of the internet kind of changed um, in a pretty radical way when it, when it went from this naive, idealistic perception of it to something a global lot more. Global village. What's that? Yeah, global village. Exactly. Uh, you know, global town square, you know, we're all town criers, uh, just exercising. I'm a global d- village idiot. <laughs> exactly. I'm one of the drunkard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it just, so, so, you know, so what you're saying here, like, I think a lot of people will find some of the stuff that I wrote less radical, maybe, or less uh, surprising, um, especially the ties between Google and and the national security state, particularly also because of these scandals that came out out of Google working with the Pentagon to develop this AI technology for for drones, for drone warfare, and Amazon selling uh, recognition uh, software, facial recognition software to police departments and all these things. So there's like a lot of stuff that's that came out right as my book oh, was published that changed a lot of people's perception. But, but I still think that people don't really um, like 
my my book goes further than uh, pe- than what even people sort of still kind of think about the internet is I try to trace um, the origins of the internet, uh, trying to trace it, put it in like a historical and cultural uh, context of where it came from, and I and I try to draw a line straight through not just these big companies like Google and Facebook and how they're integrated into the to sort of the military sort of soup that gave rise to the internet, um, but also some of the more surprising anti-surveillance or anti-government technologies like Tor and Signal and how they're actually part of, uh, you know, like this kind of militarized continuum of the internet, that there is really nothing on the internet that the military or the military industrial complex or the national security state, or, I mean, I don't know how you want to call these things. You know, people call these things different ways. I mean, maybe it'd be even better to just call it like American empire. Um, We just call it them. Them. Yeah. I mean, I actually would be curious to know how you, refer to this stuff because it's like okay you know there's the national security state you know it's like very 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 formal very official kind of sounding thing there's the old school military industrial complex right which is sort of the cold war version of it early early cold war version of it then there's like the, i don't know the intelligence community the pentagon i mean i mean i see it all these things all these this this alphabet soup of uh, intelligence agencies military contractors the private military contractors and the various branches of, of the military and armed services as kind of part of just the American empire. I mean, I, I, I kind of come to that um, in the last couple of years, just calling it that because I think it's, it's more descriptive and it's more accurate. Like it's hard because it's hard to differentiate between Google and you know, the CIA sometimes or the NSA because yeah. the NSA depends so much on a company like Google for its signals uh, intelligence. Um, you know, that goes, and it's, the same goes for all the different ISPs and the backbone providers that route our traffic. So, you know, these intelligence agencies wouldn't be able to function really without this privatized telecommunications infrastructure, you know, down to on our iPhones, right? Like our iPhones are part of this vast intelligence collection system. So I don't know where you can draw the line between Apple or Google and the NSA or some, uh, some other intelligence agencies. So it's just this vast militarized, you know, capitalist uh, apparatus that it really is the American empire. And, and so I try to situate the internet in, in that. Um, and so, yeah, some, some surprising things come out of that, which is that we find out that some of these sort of radical anti-government, anti-surveillance technologies that are marketed and, and, and to, to people and, and people believe they're actually protecting them from state surveillance and corporate surveillance are actually themselves coming out of this intelligence world, uh, military world, uh, private contractor world. Yeah, he's... You said on uh, the TrueNon podcast in your interview that, um, you know, people who use Signal, you can tell that somebody's not doing important political work based on whether or not they use Signal, which I felt both seen and attacked. <laughs> <laughs> our, uh, our podcast chat is on Signal, which, you know, we're not like planning the overthrow of the United States government on there. So it's really not. But I'm in, really interested in this idea of them being, you know, especially like Tor and end-to-end encryption messaging systems that are supposedly, Mm -hmm. you know, supposed to protect us from the powers that be. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about why that's a misconception and why it's kind of a very dangerous misconception? Yeah, well, I I think, you know, there's all these different ways where uh, the illusion of privacy or the illusion of safety that these apps uh, sort of sell uh, to people or uh, promise to people, I think are a lot more uh, very dangerous because they, people sort of 
because they think that, oh, it's encrypted. Oh, it's this intent encrypted. Uh, it's this app that's, you know, prom- that's uh, supported by Edward Snowden. Uh, you know, all the major uh, encryption experts in America and in Europe endorse uh, the encryption algorithm that Signal uses. You know, so it's like it comes with some very serious backing from, the, you know, the top experts in the world that supposedly know this stuff. But like w- one of the arguments that I m- make is that because these systems are so complex and they depend on other kind of arch- architectures that they sit on, like operating systems um, and libraries that we don't really, we don't really know what kind of interactions are there. Like there are obviously bugs, there are obviously holes in the software, like in every, any software. And so these things can be exploited. And so when you market something to people like saying, hey, this is safe, use this, this is totally uh, anonymous, you know, it's like it's NSA proof, yada, 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 it, it, it makes people use those use that software in ways that put them in danger potentially right and because it just it, it fosters a, a belief in, in safety when that safety doesn't really exist i mean it also depends who you're hiding from i mean it's always very important like who are you trying to protect yourself from right obviously you know something like signal probably will protect you from your the local police department because they don't really have the kind of budget that they need to purchase um third party you know malware that can you know target and subvert this encryption all right um the fbi probably has that those resources the federal agencies have those resources probably every you know intelligence agency uh you know in 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 almost any country with 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 a decent budget you know has the ability to most likely subvert that encryption uh either themselves uh, or by going out into the private market and because companies sell stuff like that so so like, what's your threat level? Are you trying to just, you know, are you, who are you hiding from? Right. I mean, it's an important question people need to ask themselves because like, if you think that you need to hide yourself from the NSA, you're not going to hide yourself from the NSA. Yeah. In fact, every signal communication is almost meta tagged with this, the real shit. Yeah. As goes, far as I mean, like it's the hosted NSA on Amazon. is concerned. So it's hosted yeah, on mean, Amazon. Yeah. yeah and and, and I, it, it makes me think about a lot of stuff, you know, like I remember when, um, Edward Snowden came out. Like, I actually ha- I have a uh, painting of Edward Snowden hanging up right behind me. This is on video. Um, oh, nice. I'm trying to save uh, a ba- bandwidth. But it's Edward Snowden sitting in the Washington Monument in the pose of Lincoln as, like, <laughs> on, oh, honest, honest Snowden. And it was done by an amazing artist friend of mine. And uh, he tried selling it uh, at the local wine cocktail hour, uh, we, we call uh, Troy Night Out, uh, where people sell art and stuff. And nobody really wanted it, but I, ended, I wanted it a lot. And he saved it for me and ended up giving it to me as a gift. Um, and I look up to Edward Snowden because of the story <laughs> and yes, the fact that, like, this guy, you know, was just a run-in-the-mill guy. And he was just a cog in the wheel. And he decided to become an enemy of the state for the benefit of telling us all about how the government is uh, spying on us. And then um, conveniently was able to escape the grasp of the most powerful uh, organization of people on the planet. And so on one hand, I'm like, well, you know, he's really smart. Uh, You know, I don't, I don't want to throw shade on Laura Poitras or Glenn Greenwald or like any of the people that are associated with, I think it's a real story. I think we actually are being, um, you know, uh, sold up the river to our governments in terms of privacy, etc. But the question has always been to me, like, how much is this a psyop? 
Like, how much is the ability of Edward Stone to just be chilling in Moscow a product of the fact that the U.S. government actually benefited from the um, essentially uh, widespread dissemination of the fact that they were warrantlessly wiretapping all of us, uh, but it being done by somebody who the mainstream media could write off as a traitor and, mm, uh, you know, done in such a way that the, uh, you know, quote unquote, grassroots uh, activisty, dissenty uh, type of American could be like, oh, this is all real and above board. And the only reason that, uh, you know, Snowden is alive and well and free to the degree that he is, is that uh, Russia is like an, you know, enemy of the American uh, state. So it's, it's interesting to me that you talk about the them that I talked about earlier uh, as being described as the American empire, because I just don't see any nationalistic element to this at all. Like I see a lot of um, uh, cooperation between the Chinese government and the Russian government and the European government and everything else. And to the degree that there was any real uh, international egg on the face of the U S state department uh, from the Snowden uh, revelations, it was in this Kabuki theater kind of like, you know, Angela Merkel being like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're spying on us. Like, you know, like, we would never have the uh, German version of the uh, NSA spy on Americans. Like, blah, blah, blah. it just it, it all seemed uh, coordinated and uh, if not manufactured, uh, definitely like, I don't know, uh, yeah. w- well dressed up. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like, I mean, when I talk about that, this is the American empire, I, I mean, I, I mean, like that the Internet is an expression of the American empire. Uh, I mean, to the extent that like, obviously it's gotten a lot more complicated. So let's say if it was still like the two thousands, you know, early two thousands, you could say almost, almost very clearly. And it'll be a pretty pure statement that the internet as it's expanding throughout the world is almost purely an extension of the American empire because America dominated the internet. Like uh, China was just beginning to get its internet, you know, internet up, up and running. Uh, Russia had like a pretty he- dynamic internet um, in, inside the country, but because the Russian government was still um, basically just bare bones and, and, and uh, from the collapse of the Soviet union and that all these, all its intelligence agencies and uh, uh, were, you know, defunded essentially were in austerity mode uh, all through the 90s um, and they were just beginning to rebuild their capacity that they were um, that capacity I mean it still hasn't caught up to the Amer- American capacity or the Chinese capacity in Russia um, it's a lot more cruder I mean back then it was a, even more crude so everything that like sort of America was the dominant player in terms of the technology in terms of the network ownership in terms of the sort of backbone ownership globally right so and and you know the the actual everything from you know, the technology of the PC to the operating systems, right, to the applications, to the software uh, layer, to the, to the, like the network layer, you know, the phys- from, the, from the software to the physical wires, like America dominated the internet. And, and all of that was intertwined with, um, you know, of course, American corporate power, uh, because these American corporations expanded abroad. Uh, and as they expanded abroad, they brought you know, the, the, the government along with them, right? Because they're part of the same package. And so, mm. and, and, and so as like time has passed and of course other nations have become sometimes a lot more um, sort of savvy actually in, in the internet and developed their own infra- infrastructure and China being a prime example of this, where it was one of the first, very early, uh, probably the first and the, the earliest un- to understand that the internet is, um, you know, an extension of American uh, imperial power or geopolitical power. And so, and, and began to kind of build out its own domestic capacity 
and to and to control it uh and to to build this firewall and that was the beginning of this first um you know you call it like a cyber arms race uh between America and China where uh America was nat- naturally saw the internet as it saw like free trade that it dominates trade right around the world it sets the rules uh about how trade happens it, it access to american corporations cannot be restricted in, anywhere on the globe and if it is restricted you know you basically um you know you 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 feel the full brunt of the american empire uh against you like let's say in iran or venezuela or um right and, uh, and so the, it saw the internet in, in in the same kind of way where any attempt to restrict american access right to a market let's say like in china was seen as like an act of war almost you know against america and so and so america developed these tools to try to like get around uh chinese uh st- censorship of the internet or control of the internet and, and china of course like retaliated and built up its capacity um to be able to block the, these these sort of in- intrusions and and so like you you would see this play out um around the world um and and if smaller nations had a lot of trouble keeping up with america you know um uh, and they still do and and so and this you know we were talking about tor and signal before and actually this fight over the internet and over the sort of imperial um control of the internet um is what gave birth to uh, uh, tools like the tor project and ultimately what led to the funding of um the signal chat app because all of these things were actually funded within funded within a unit in, inside the U.S. government that was uh, set up to fight sort of the internet freedom battle to to, to fight for freedom uh, uh, of the internet around the world uh, and and created tools that would um, make it harder to spy on people right for for, for gov- governments like China and make it harder for them for governments to censor uh, and and to block internet internet content um, so. So that's what I mean by sort of the internet being an extension of American power. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it, Edward Snowden plays a role in that because he, he, he I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting role. This, what, he, what he did was, was amazing um, he, because he did reveal this, the details of, of, of what a lot of people kind of un, un, already understood was happening, but he filled in a lot of the details and showed how America uses the internet as, as a sort of like, you know, private um signals signals and collection system right uh, where all the basically the internet and it's everything that's connected to it was seen as these like radars uh for american intelligence apparatus um and but what's interesting about him is that in the end he ended up saying that the answer to this government surveillance this global government surveillance is actually tools that were created by the government like the tor project and like signal that you fight yeah. surveillance um, with anti-surveillance weapons, right? So and, he, yeah, and he, mm-hmm. and he also did it in such a Yankee Doodle kind of way. He was like, "Well, I'm actually a hyper patriot. Like, I believe that America just needs to know about these things and and have the free discussion of a uh, liberal democracy to decide whether or not these things should be done." And at the at the very w- worst element of this is it being kept from the uh, the population. And as such, he was like the perfect interlocutor to get us to wrap our minds around the scope and degree to which the ruling class had their hands around our throat and like their, you know, the ability to, you know, signal, uh, intercept literally any communication that we have. Um, and at the same time being like, but this is like, you know, this isn't that big of a deal because look how I can, you know, display it all to you all here. And here are some solutions, uh, to get around it, but like they may or may not actually be real. 
I, I think it it also was a good moment where um, uh, maybe Stone isn't completely can't take total credit for this, but there's also like you start noticing how um, uh, uh, like I think it's like a Goebbels quote that was like you know you, you uh, um, accuse your enemy that which you are you are guilty of, <laughs> and it's like how much um, uh, America says like. Like you were, Yasha, you were talking about with China earlier about like, you know, like, oh, they're, they're just trying to control their people and the, and their perception in the world through the, you know, the Chinese firewall and all, all, all this shit. When it's, when that is, that is clearly what the United States uses. It uses the, uh, um, the internet and it's, pr- and all of the, and like all these American based firms as like a, as like a soft power to, to control how they're seen and, and how to, uh, uh, monitor the communication of like everyone outside of the United States too. So it's very clear that that yeah. um, what we say about China is is doubly true about about us. I mean, yeah, the five G the five G freak out. I mean, it's it's basically you know like China freaking out about America and, and like in, encroaching into its into its inter, in, domestic internet space, right? Like and th- realizing like wait a minute, like we're developing this internet. And like it allows this other, this other government that's basically to just dominate to dominate this this infrastructure. And if we don't like keep it out and develop our own infrastructure um, with our that that are um, you know in line with our own culture and our own laws and our own you know uh, values, you can disagree or agree with those values. I mean that's not important. The point is is that like you know they, there's a, it's a, it's a it's a country. Uh, there's a, there's a society there, right? Uh, it, it, there's a government. It's how it, it's and it feels it believes that it's it has a legitimacy and the power or the right to control the information um, within its borders, right? And how it's in, in line with its culture and, and, its, and its laws and all these things. And so like, and so the kind of the firewall, you know, that, that China built against American, uh, against America is sort of like the, the kind of what's happening in, in this weird reversal, right? Where like people are, you know, Americans are freaking out about, I mean, you know, China entering the game and, and creating the infrastructure and selling it to people and, 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 uh, and selling it to nations and at times underbidding, you know, American and Western companies. And, and so, like, it's just such an, a clear example of the Internet infrastructure as an extension of geopolitical power of the country that provides that infrastructure right uh, also uh, i yes. want to point out that 5g causes autism stay woke <laughs> <laughs> so so you know i was i was actually doing some research uh the other day about like the um all the conspiracy theories that 5g uh, antennas cause coronavirus and one of the first um results that i got back in a google search result was from voice of america God. <laughs> talking about how uh that's that, how that's not true that, oh. that 5g is completely safe and good and you should uh, welcome it with open arms i just thought that was like so it's hilarious define like, good I don't think- <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, obviously 5G doesn't cause the coronavirus. But it's as, there yeah, is as good something... as nuclear power. Yeah. It's just, yeah. 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 But there, there is something like really fascinating with like why Voice of America decided to pick <laughs> that up as like something to to n- make sure no one is concerned about. Like, it's yeah, very and, strange. And also, Yasha, yeah. while we're talking about specifically about 5G, is there anything at all that you're aware of that moving from four to five <laughs> brings any health, safety or environmental like implications whatsoever i don't i and to be honest i don't, I, I don't i don't have anything to say on that i mean i i 
I, I, I want to believe that it's horrible, you know, obviously, because it's just like, uh, because just God, it's just, we need more sensors, you know, like it's distributed, you know, with even a greater density than before. It's like, I just, but I have no idea. And I, I would be, I would be surprised if it does. I mean, it's, it's, it's like any other kind of, um, um, radio frequency technology, right. That, that we use is just, it's a bit more powerful, but I don't know how much more powerful it is than, than the stuff that we have now. But I, so I can't weigh in one way or another. I mean, I, it, the whole push to, to create this network. I mean, it's, it's, and, and like, and to, when, like, I can barely get a decent, uh, you know, like, uh, DSL connection in a in a major city, you know, it's actually kind of funny. Like, uh, like I find it ridiculous that I, I can barely, you know, I can barely use the internet at home. Uh, and it takes me like a couple hours to upload a photo, uh, or like a video because it's all, you know, just, it's like shitty service everywhere, uh, and poor infrastructure. And yet we're like trying to go into this, you know, like, like outer space level technology, you know, 5g, yeah. A few years ago, David and I lived in an apartment where we had constant ongoing internet problems and both of us being, you know, we were in grad school, we worked from home. And I spent countless hours on the phone with fucking Spectrum. And eventually they just said, well, you just happen to live in an area where like our hardware is shitty. So sorry about that. We're just not trying here. <laughs> so if you could just like. And it was in like move. a very low income, like working class neighborhood. And they were just like, mm, yeah, I don't know. Just I mean, don't maybe, feel like it. Bootstraps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah look i mean you don't really have usually most likely you didn't have much of a choice there anyway there's either the no, most there's places no there's like Zero choice. Yeah. Yeah. so there's like it's a monopoly so fuck you you know yeah go yeah you know, and, and your, and like your local your yeah. local ci uh like city council or something are the people that get to decide the contract yep. with with those companies so like it when when it's when a when a, uh, uh, an internet service provider wants to provide service to an area, they they like enter in a contract, and that's where you get stuff like uh, uh, public access television and like anything that that is like publicly funded that um, uh, has some sort of broadcast component is an extraction from a, a, or a, a, a um, what is that word? A concession. Concession. Yeah, it's it's a concession from the that cable company by your uh, negotiated by your your local government. And so if you don't have that, it's usually because your local government doesn't know how to negotiate with a multi billion dollar uh, like IT company. Like how or they're the hell just bought off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or more likely, like they don't even bother <laughs> because they're bought off. Yeah. So it's 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 really interesting how how quickly these like global concerns become very very local. Because these companies just like are able to say what's what like really, really fast in the same way that we usually talk about China as like, well, they, you they don't have any freedom there. And the, the government locks down the Internet so fast. I was like, I, I got a letter in the mail about uh, downloading, uh, like accusing me of pirating. So we got a DMCA. Well, yeah, we got a DMCA. It was a true accusation. I, but, yeah. Allegedly <laughs> satire. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, satiric, satiric pirating. Yeah, I like. Pirating. I, I don't know where those episodes of Star Trek. No, that, it's, came it's from. happened. It's happened to some people I know. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's happened to me. Episodes. It's happened to me three times, uh, and to the point where I actually went ahead and got a uh, a fucking uh, VPN because <laughs> I was That's like, funny. oh shit, motherfuckers! Because I grew up in the LimeWire, uh, ShareBear, uh, yeah. you know, Napster era, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, zero cost to reproduce equals zero right to uh, 
attribute any type of retail value. <laughs> and, this episode uh, of Iron Weeds brought to you by NordVPN. Uh, exactly. But to me, you know, to me, the whole 5G thing is like, it's like, you know, it's again, it's another one of these like bubbles essentially or like an attempt to create a new industry to, to just to in order to you know create another churn in all the technology right so you have to upgrade all your devices you have to like you know a whole new generation of, of trash that has to be generated in order to like get the sort of marginal you know whatever the speed increases you're going to get you know like it's a technological it's, it's, revolution exactly it's like you know, exactly it's a technological revolution the meaning that you have to revolve all your devices out of or, you know, out of use and, <laughs> and dump them into a garbage garbage bin i mean that's basically it, you know like and so, like, and so, um, like, all this stuff about 5G and, you know, like, the, the health effects, which, I mean, I don't, I, fuck, who, fuck, who, the, who the hell knows? But, like, and then, the, and then the war between, you know, America and China or 5G and who's going to control the future of the internet, like, it's, a, it's kind of all of this is just sort of, like, it's just another, it's just another, um, like, iteration of, uh, first of all, you know, just like an attempt to market something to you. So you, have, so you spend money and, and have to, you know, buy thing new, new stuff. Um, like, I mean, to be honest, like the speed, the speed capacity that exists now is built out completely. I mean, it's pretty good. I don't know if you, what, what you need, you need it for, you need higher speeds for, to be honest. I don't know. Like you can barely get like the top speeds, uh, in most places in America, like, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, t- it's total marketing. They're like up to, it's up like to, exactly. megabit. Then, yeah, it was like one day <laughs> and like at 3am when no one's using it, you could theoretically get 300 down. <laughs> no, and, and my cell phone sometimes is faster than my, you know, my landed, it landed in it, but yeah. like, and, 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 but what's it, what's weird about it is like, you know, you look at a city, you know, like New York or LA or whatever. And like, you're like, okay, like, Wait, you can't run your own like network with routers, you know, like Wi-Fi routers. Like this, it's like you run this in your own house. Like it's it's just it's not that much more difficult to run it for your city. You know, it's like you already have all the all the subway. You have all you have all the wires. You can just lay the wires. You can just put the antennas. You can just give it out for free. Like you can just have you know like continuous Wi-Fi service all through the city. You don't even you know like you I mean, you would still need cell phone service, I guess, but like it just isn't provided. Instead, you get this sort of like layers and layers and new versions of the marketing stuff. So you have to upgrade all your stuff. It's like, it's kind of sick that most of America has just, you know, basically like 90s level internet speeds. Uh, and like we're coming out with this like revolutionary 5G technology that's supposed to, you know, completely change the way that we interact. Everything is going to be a 3D virtual model. You know, we're just going to like, we're going to be holograms. Everything's going to be a hologram. <laughs> like that's like, like I can't even download a freaking video. Like, what are you talking yeah, right. about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, fastest, cheapest internet in America, Chattanooga, Tennessee. It is municipal a, a, a municipal uh, internet network that they originally rolled out to use as a smart grid for their electricity. Oh, exactly. But they realized like we're going to have to wire up every building anyway, so we might as well become an ISP also. And you can get like gigabit Ethernet for like thirty bucks a month. It's like it's wild, and that and because that's Christian. actually what it costs costs to do this but they won't do it because <laughs> you have to hire a bunch of unionized labor to roll out fiber to everybody and they don't yeah. want to do that they would rather make more money on like little sp- like cutting up their capacity more and more and more i guarantee you like dealing with for instance treating sewage in a city is a lot more complicated than setting up a wi-fi network you know yeah like, for a yeah. lot yeah. more complicated well, okay. i want to i want to point out that like you know i keep getting drawn back to your uh characterization of all of this as like expanding american empire and it's like isn't it really comcast empire 
<laughs> you know, isn't it, isn't it so much more disambiguous to our actual state apparatus than like a border or a name or a nationality or a political allegiance in the times of war would like actually indicate? Well, I mean, smarter people than me have said before that, you know, the state is the handmaiden of capital and vice versa. So it's it's really kind of like a, a self doesn't really matter. System. They both rely on each other for their for their proper functioning. Um, you know, I think trying to draw two hard and fast distinctions between the American empire as like a state based entity versus American corporatism and as, as like a, a global entity. I think that the distinctions there are. Um, at least functionally uh, meaningless, if not like distinction without a difference, distinction without a difference. Yeah, they're both them. You know, it's a sort of classic, I don't know, biological way of like looking at at, at, uh, individual organisms as as existing totally separate from other organisms. And and in reality, when you look at even like, you know, a human being, like it's a very complex system. I mean, we wouldn't be able to live with all these other um, bacteria that live in our gut that like that that are very without them, we would actually die. Uh, It's an organism uh, environment field. Exactly. And so the government and and these corporations, I mean, they're not they're like they are not there's. There's not a hard line between them. I mean, first of all, corporations as they exist are, um, you know, they are uh, created by the state. They're created by the state. You know, they are empowered by the state with certain rights. Um, um, uh, and I mean, they are chartered by by actual states in America. So like so, you know, they are actually on paper. These corporations are creations of the state and so they are the state in in a in in, you know or they are this an expression of the society however you want to call it but they are like a state could revoke a charter of a corporation you know you know i mean i don't know if it has ever happened really but it can it can happen uh and it probably should happen but it doesn't happen so so like yeah i i when i when i when i wrote this book like one of the things that i want to do like one of the things, you know, when you look at like the history of something, a company like Google or something, you know, it's like, and you try to understand, you begin to understand that like the, the, the line between um, sort of the intelligence apparatus or the national security state and a company like Google are very, are very fuzzy. I mean, going back to the very origins of the company, right? I mean, the research, the university that it came out of, Stanford, um, the, the research that funded um, Sergey Brin's and Larry Page's, you know, first like indexing uh, algorithm. Uh, Backrub, like uh, where that funding came from, which was um, DARPA, uh, so the you know the the, the agency that created the internet, um, and also the FBI and some other state state agencies like the um, like the uh, National Science Foundation. So, which is also actually its charter is about um, promoting science in in the interest of American defense. So the and, and then you know when Google is you know so the research and the technology that sort of created the nucleus of, of what Google became comes from um, national security state apparatus funding uh, and, 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 and programs that are associated with it. And, and then the larger framework of computer science that was um, in, in effect created and, and sustained by uh, DARPA or ARPA. I mean, computer science as like a academic field, you know, with, with computer science departments and universities all across the country. I mean, that didn't exist before ARPA created it. You know, it was all about electrical engineering and computer science was within electrical engineering. And so the whole CS apparatus that, exi- that exists at, at, at every university that pumps out, you know, uh, the you know, uh, latest innovators and, and, and uh, like that is itself an expression of the national security state. And so, and then when you come back and look at Google, you see that 
you know, almost immediately after they became a company and incorporated, they began to sell their technology, uh, their indexing technology back to the state, you know, back to the CIA, which bought these early Google search boxes that you would put in their own data, data warehouses. The NSA bought, bought the stuff too. And so like, and from then on, the, the interaction between um, Google and the national security state that spawned it deepened with every year. It wasn't just you know, Google wasn't just selling technology back to the state. You know, it, it became um, an important uh, part of the signals intelligence system, right? I mean, it, Google became the thing that, um, um, uh, you know, our intelligence agencies uh, in America, like, used to collect information, all right, about the world. And, um, and so they became, Google became sort of the sensor of um, the radar installations of of American intelligence agencies. And so, and, and of course, then you have, when you look at it on a personal level, you have a constant flow between uh, government positions in the intelligence world and, and uh, executive positions inside Google. And I'm just using Google as an example for pretty much any major uh, tech company. There is like on, on almost every level that you look at the inner, the connections between the state apparatus uh, and sort of the, the private apparatus are just complete it's completely interlocking and so um and so yeah i mean i think you can't really disentangle you know uh, you can't really disentangle these things they are part of the same organism um and it is a kind of a almost like a i don't know it's like a a pretty um like elementary school uh distinction you know just and it's it's like to to, to draw these hard lines as well there's the private sector and then there's the government sector you know as if there are these two things that exist completely independent of each other um they're, they're not i mean they're they're totally interlocked and the internet is like that right and um you you said at the end of your uh your true not interview that privacy is you know culturally contingent and we need to stop being so american about it so what do we you know, go, what do we do with that thesis? Do we just kind of do we have to shrug and move on? I mean, what uh, what what how do we incorporate this information into our behaviors and our activities? Yeah, I, one one other thing is like I remember you said you were you were drawing this distinction between like you know there are multi general generational households that you know you would never expect any sort of privacy in your conversations, and so like why would you expect it on the internet? Also, and at first I was thinking like, well, like what is like living with your grandma have to do with like the, you know, that's different than the FBI listening in on my, my phone conversations, but yeah, you've got nice grandmas it, though. Yeah. Not yeah. But, I, but my grandmas were very nice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, your parents, uh, man, that's a central authority in that like you can get <laughs> in real trouble, right. If they spy us something and, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know about, I don't know about your grandma. Brother. I, I yeah. have no comment yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Big grandma. I didn't come, I didn't come prepared for, for that. <laughs> Big grandma. <laughs> but, but seriously, yeah, I guess, I mean, seriously though, like what, um, like I, I, yeah, I, I always have this problem too, because like when uh, I first read your work, I was thinking about like my, what I had said a while ago about like, like where does it bring us when you have all this like um, uh, matrixy, uh, uh, elite hacksaws that are like talking about how uh, all this privacy will lead to uh, liberty, but it's like, well, like if you need the privacy, then you don't have liberty in the first place. So, like, what? Wh- I, I don't know. Should we? Is there yeah, like a cultural yeah. change that has to happen here, or what? 
I mean, I think, in, yeah, I think, I, on, yeah, it's a strange kind of thing, right? I mean, like privacy, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of built-in cultural assumptions and they're not very rarely examined and they're kind of hard to analyze, you know? I mean, and so like, yeah, the way that I think about it is like, okay, what is privacy? Privacy from, 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 from whom? I mean, or privacy for who? Um, obviously, the, the notion of privacy has uh, changed um, and has changed with the invention of uh, and development of technology, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, the, the invention of photo cameras really changed things in a big way because suddenly you could be photographed, you know, and like captured on film and this could be distributed. And, you know, the, like it, it was a big invasion of, of what people considered, you know, was private um, because it couldn't be just sort of commodified like that and spread around. But, but, but privacy, you know, I mean, I'm, I kind of look at the, it's important because it's such a big, big topic, um, privacy, like you can get quickly lost in, 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 in it. Um, but I guess what I'm responding to is sort of this, this notion of privacy that became, um, you know, such a, so big, huge in like sort of the Obama era, right. Um, when it became like the dominant, um, I don't know, like political fight or value of like internet culture and, and, um, sort of like youth culture in, in America. It's almost like fetishized even. Yeah. And, and so, but the question is, what is that privacy? Like, who are you being private for? So it's always been like privacy from the government, right? So I, I get, and like, that's, that's one thing. Uh, but at the same time, it's, but, but it's like, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's just a strange thing because it's, it's, it exists almost completely outside of anything. It's this abstract, yeah, it's abstract fetishized um like idea that like you said that like everyone thinks about it but like what does it actually mean like who are you who are you seeking privacy from and i think this you know the central problem in american society is like that we're all like atomized that we're already like too private right and and um we've all, we're all kind of broken up and and and, and this idea that like in the, in the way to fight a war you know and the way to in, engage a, sort of in a political in political battles and um and to, and to, and to organize politically is to actually like think about encryption first. You know, you got to think about your OPSEC first. That's the main thing. It's like, you're going to do political organizing. <laughs> you got to think about OPSEC. You know, it's like, like what are you, what are you talking? Like, what does that even mean? Like it's, it's, it's a paranoid world, like, but it actually like it, no one examined it. Like, and so, yeah, I mean, I think privacy um, is a very, it's a very particular kind of value. And I think like, for instance, you know, I was helping this guy yesterday with his dogs, you know, like a person who lives on the street has no expectation of privacy whatsoever. I mean, just obviously, because first of all, they live on the street. They don't even have a house that they live in, you know, like a basic door that they can sort of hide behind. Um, and of course, they don't have privacy from the police, right? Because the police can come in and rough them up in any way they want. And like they have basically no rights in terms of like to privacy. Um, I mean, you know, uh, and so people who are uh, poor, who are kind of exploited, um, black and brown people you know have a different relationship with privacy than someone you know who's like out uh working for the electric you know electronic frontier foundation right like privacy is not something that you even expect to have from the state but also from you know maybe even your family because you live again in, cr in cramped uh living situations with multi-generational households or very small apartments because you're poor um you know like again like i uh, like i said my mom for instance you know she grew up in a communal apartment um there were like I mean, I said there was something like, I don't know, like a 10 different families that lived in one apartment. We used one bathroom, you know, like talk about privacy, 
right? Like that's not privacy. You know, people didn't have privacy whatsoever. And so like this notion of privacy for them, I think would be like, like very different. They wouldn't be obsessed with it as, as much. I mean, of course they would cherish it, but it's not something that you obsess over. But then you move into like a suburban kind of white culture uh, in America where everyone has, is at, you know, has this atomized unit. People have their own house. You know, it's separated from other people. Everything is, you know, there's a lot of separation between everything. People kind of expect to get privacy from the state, right? They expect the state to sort of honor uh, their privacy, right? And to not just barge in whenever they want because they have, they have some privilege, you know, in, in terms of their status. Um, it's, it's a very particular kind of value. And it comes out of, I think, yeah, like a more of an affluent uh, white middle class, you know, a, a Cold War American uh, culture. It seems very similar to the right wing militant anti-statist notion that if you just have enough guns, you'll be able to fight the government. That like totally. this, it's exactly this that, idea yeah. that if we have the right kind of technology to ensure our privacy, then we'll be able to engage in all of these political projects or, you know, a more kind of middle class white American idea that it's just our right to be private. Uh, yeah. yeah, it seems like a fool's errand. And they, the co- they those things go together. Those things go together, right? The gun rights stuff and and the kind of the suburban, you know, you know, you're, you're my house is my castle, um, kind of like uh, my right. my lawn. My lawn is my moat, um, kind of uh, mentality. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's they go together, right? So, and I totally agree with you. And it's like the whole like the whole idea of w- what politics on the internet looks like is like okay, there are these bad actors, you know, it's the government, it's Google, like, and they're spying on us. It's like also. Okay, that, that's not all they're doing, but okay, that's, they're spying on us, right? So we, in order to stop the spying, because that's invasive, that's bad, that's the only thing bad that they're doing, like we need to develop our own, you know, counter defensive weapon. So it's like, they have a weapon, we have a weapon, and you sort of engage in this sort of arms race with these, with these, with these bad guys. Um, and that's kind of what Edward, that's Edward Snowden's whole pitch. That's Edward Snowden's whole solution to uh, the surveillance problem on the internet. Like, you got to go out there. And you, you know, as like engineers and coders, you got to go build the next, the next privacy weapon that um, people like people like, you know, normal people can then use to defend themselves against the state and against these giant corporations. That's the, yeah. So, so I, I want to point out a couple of things. One, one is that Edward Snowden represented a, uh, a, a call and push to a variety of solutions. Like one was, you know, policy change directly. Which was that he believed that the NSA, you know, uh, was uh, unconstitutionally breaking um, legal rights of people, and uh, that we could, if we were to expose it like he did, and to engage in a, um, a productive dialogue, of, you know, create law and uh, can, you know, uh, nor- normalize a level of uh, institutional protection from private and state power, uh, you know, invading our quote unquote privacy. The second thing I wanted to point out was that privacy, as far as its importance, is entirely contextual and conditional. You know, like if I am thinking about making a bunch of edibles for my friends so that they can deal with their totally hypothetical, ang- completely yeah, hypothetical. you know. Of course. Um, And, uh, you know, because we have this pandemic 
that's creating a uh, extreme level of uh, personal uh, anxiety for a ton of people who are already mm-hmm. anxious for a ton of reasons. And I wanted to um, protect my um, uh, uh, activity and outreach to my friend circle in this time of need to help medicate with them with something that is um, uh, by state power illicit. Then my goal in privacy is to protect myself from Joey Bag of Donuts at, you know, the, the TPD. And to get yeah. them from intercepting me when I'm, uh, you know, uh, delivering uh, a, uh, a confection to a friend. And if I'm trying to uh, talk about a, you know, anti-capitalist uh, uprising in the United States that involves, I don't know, like a rent strike or something uh, along the lines of a non-compliant action uh, with the uh, the state and uh, the, with the corporate powers that dominate and own all the means of production that our lives depend on, um, then I would want a different set of people, uh, you know, precluded from the conversation. And so the the whole thing about like big grandma, it's like, well, you know, I'm going. I think privacy <laughs> always mattered, even when we were living in you know four generational houses, and that people mm-hmm. had a network of uh, both like you know, testing and then, uh, you know, uh, maintaining a OPSEC to the things that were important in their world to keep from getting in trouble. Um, you know, especially when that trouble like was unwarranted and wouldn't be helpful to anybody. Um, yeah. Like when I popped the screens out of my bedroom window so I could smoke cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with you, but I'll, I'll tell you what the, the, so the privacy is obviously ha- is contextual and like you say, but it's important in different, in different ways. It's not like a fi- fictitious um, issue, right? It, that, that doesn't matter. I guess my, my issue with, with this focus on privacy is that it's focused on to the ex- almost the total exclusion of everything else that's connected to the internet. And so when you have these, the growth of these giant cor- corporations, um, that uh like spy on you yes but then um like dominate our economy and don't just spy on you but also control what you see mediate your interactions with with um other people right with your friends families with your doctors with your um you know with your teachers with your with your students all these things like the focus is is like there are so many different political issues that arise out of out of the 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 creation and, and the rise of these kinds of new entities and their integration with um, U.S. imperial power, right? Um, but like all of that was almost like shunted aside to the, and and everybody was focused just on surveillance and privacy, right? And so, and so it, it restricted sort of the the political imagination, you know, in people's minds, right? Like, and because this, and, and and so, and because all these other things are really complex. I mean, uh, political issues, right? And that like people's position on them. Um, will vary widely depending on their uh, political political viewpoint right you know but like but there was this privacy was almost like this kind of unifying issue that everyone could sort of join hands with uh, join hands about um the the left sort of the you know the left and, and the libertarian right could sort of join hands about this and, and and come out you know to rallies and all these things against the nsa um Bottom and coalition. So, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And then, and then, you know, and then of course this, this, um, this issue always like they had a ready-made answer, had a ready-made solution. It's like, oh, you care about privacy? Oh, use Tor. Oh, use Signal. Use all these things, right? Yeah. And so, and it gave people a sense of like, oh, I'm being, doing something political to take on these beasts, you know, that are like controlling our lives and spying on us and da, da, da. It like, feels so, good, man. 
it feels good. You feel like you're taking part in something and you're kind of engaging in political activism. You're organizing. But what you're being told to is just to sort of download an app, you know, and to use it. It's a bit like, like ethical consumption. I yeah, guess. exactly. Yeah. It, it, well, and it's also like it. Well, the the more central privacy becomes uh, more. Se- the more central privacy is to your politics, the more sort of excuses you can give to the organizations that you are trying to get privacy from is what it sounds like I'm hearing from mm-hmm. you that like if if uh, privacy can be a big uh, political ask or action, then um, you don't. Uh, concern yourself as much with the the organizations that you are seeking privacy from, because now it's like, well, we could have a a, 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 a um, an all powerful surveillance state, and we could have these unaccountable corporate actors. But as long as we have an app that can give us privacy to those, then we don't have to even bother like dethroning those yeah, organizations. Yeah, outside of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically like naturalizing them. You're like, well, you're never going to get rid of those organizations, so you might as well just hide from them, which just seems like a really like big concession to power. Yeah, totally. Because you're because yeah, you're like you're yeah, exactly. You're you're you don't want to actually change the structure of the of power, right? You're just saying we're going to accept this power and we're just going to develop countermeasures against it. So it would be the same thing as saying that like in order to civil rights, that's all bullshit. You know, like oh yeah, going for like you know desegregating schools and whatever, like you know. Like, that's never going to work because, you know, politics is corrupt and like, you know, it's going to be subverted by whatever, you know, uh, like uh, whatever, you know, it's going to be just because it's just human nature because that's politics. Someone's going to like buy people off. Yeah, politics is hard and we lose. And so in order to like equalize the playing field between people who are black and white, like everyone should just wear a white sheet. Or or, or uh, uh, everyone get a YouTube makeup tutorials of like how uh, Dave Chappelle did that like white person makeup. Exactly. Just we should all wear. Yeah, we should all just yeah. be one color, which would be like off like white, I guess. I don't know what it would be, but like but just so you don't actually so you're just ch- you want to change your behavior. And I mean, it's like it's like saying, yeah, look, it's it's like, you know, like we should all hide just under the same kind of white sheet, all of us. That way no one will like. You know, you go to the school and like they don't know if what what color you are under, underneath that white white sheet. So like, yeah, go ahead, yeah, sit wherever you want on the bus. Like, so you're actually not like taking on power, like you said. It's you're just like uh, conforming to it uh, and using sort of technological uh, solutions to conform to it and sort of weasel around it. So like, it's actually yeah, it's a concession to power and it's totally like apolitical. I mean, it's anti-politics, right? It's it's um it's saying that like don't engage in politics. Um, like come up, basically figure out like the various kinds of weapons that you can use to neutralize this thing that are outside of the political sphere, right? Um, and so, like privacy, when you it was like when Edward Snowden revealed the power uh, of these companies and like how they, how closely they're integrated with um, you know the national security state. Like, yes, there were calls for to reform uh, the NSA and to sort of. And um, to and initially, there was even like, you know, like as Google was implicated, you know, and all these companies were integrated, in, in, implicated in PRISM, but very quickly, like focus on PRISM, right? And like the corporate side of that relationship, of that surveillance relationship, like quickly faded. And it was just about like the NSA, right? And just sort of um, like restricting what the NSA does and like, and, and a focus on all these tools. Like if you remember, 
like what's that uh there's all these different like organizations that popped up like promoting uh like yeah, fight for the future was, fight, was fight one, for the for future in the eff i actually know a couple of the founders of both of them and they both yeah. went to like my weird uh engineer high school uh kid like smart kid fucking high school uh they were a couple of years ahead of me but i went to this weird pr- program called mass academy of math and science and it's mm. a 50 kid per graduating class um uh, cohort very small and basically what they wow. would do is they'd they'd combine junior and senior year curriculum into one year and basically make you work like a college student doing schoolwork pretty much the entire day um you know like a ton of um uh homework and a ton of classwork um and they would make you uh skip basically your senior year uh, by combining the two together. And then you'd go to, to school at WPI. And it was actually really good because I think that we, um, and, and this is, you know, I, like, this is going to be an unpopular p- opinion, but but I think that we, we uh, expect way too little out of high school students in terms of actual, like, um, uh, application to any of the material. Um, so I personally loved it. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the thing that, uh, that, that came out of that was a whole bunch of people that are weird as heck. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, two of them I know, uh, personally started, I believe both the EFF and, uh, fight for the future. And these people are like sincere, like political and ideological, like radicals trying to make the, uh, future better for everybody, but they're within yeah. a cultural context that we all are in. You know, which is like a liberal democracy um, that is mostly a neoliberal um, order and uh, a a system of like, well, you know, what are we going to do from here and what are people's capacities to be involved? So I got to say, like, I signed so many motherfucking online petitions. (laughs) (laughs) when all all this fucking came out man i was signing like two or three online petitions a day man i was was, was doing those petitions man i was in the trenches man i was was, (laughs) you didn't have a bot that like signed the petitions for you that's no no man i was yeah do some robo signing yeah no no i i I had about like uh 50 myspace friends and i was uh signing signing shit left and right and i was saying no no the government and the the corporations uh are the status is not quo man and uh <laughs> yahoo this- has gone too far <laughs> but as you know it's, it's what's funny about all that stuff is like you had all these you know fight for the future and eff i mean they have like big corporate donors and sponsors i mean so like you know the fight for the future when it was like doing its anti-nsa campaigns i mean like yeah. google was backing it Reddit. Um, yeah, Reddit was backing it. You have like this and these kind of sh- shady like uh, like uh, foundations that funnel money, you know, and hide the, the origins of this money. I mean, I was I actually tried to track this stuff down, but like they were funded by various like the tech sector um, and big names in the tech sector. And so and yet they're the ones sort of advocating for privacy on the Internet, you know, like it just like and, and of course, what, what are what are what's the like solution like technology uh tools that can give you privacy and so it like kind of works for for everybody you know like uh, and, and oh, well and I, for, I forgot to add the last step is that and many of these tools are actually funded by the u.s government or, and funded by the u.s national security state and so you have this kind of strange brew of of like anti-government activism funded by giant corporations that are in essence like part of the government right and, and are providing these services to the government surveillance service to the government with tools that are funded by the same U.S. government that you're trying to protect yourself from, you know, like so. 
it was like, I don't it's know, a man. Total... It sounds like purity tests. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all about purity tests. I'm, yeah, if you uh, if you use Tor, you're deplatformed. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Canceled. Canceled. Yep. You're gonna. Be, I'm taking you off Netflix. Taking you off Netflix. It's over. Yeah. You know, developing technologies to guarantee privacy is great and all that. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a. I mean, like. I'm I'm not against door locks, you know. Um I'm 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 like I'm I'm ideologically down with being able to lock your front door. You know, it's 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 cool. It's cool. It's cool in my books. But but the problem you know like but the idea that you could sort of fight um surveillance in 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 our society purely with these technological means is ridiculous. I mean, because the reason we have all this, you know, and the reason why spies and surveillance sort of dominates the internet is not just because we're not like using a privacy software, you know, uh, uh, often enough. It's because um, spies and giant corporations um, um, dominate our society, right? Like they, they, these are the dominant players in our society. And like, you're not gonna get rid of those players by using a little, you know, grassrooty kind of uh, uh, application on your, on your, on your computer. Uh, like these, these are, you know, things that are part of society. And so of course they're part of the internet. So you're not going to get rid of them. You're not going to kick them off the internet. Um, because they are part of the larger society in which the internet exists. And so um, fighting surveillance and fighting for privacy uh, on the internet has to be done in the political realm. It's a political problem, not a technological problem, uh, because it's larger than the internet. It's, 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 it's just like embedded in our, in our, you know, in our, in our society. And so um, that's my kind of general, my, my general message, uh, you know, a call, call to arms, uh, uh, so, Yasha, a more recent project of yours um, that maybe gets gets us more directly to uh, politics, right, is how you're looking at uh, immigrants and how they've been used and abused by the American government to stoke anti-left politics uh, in America and in, like, Western Europe. And in one of your latest entries to your Substack, you have this... Um, this fascinating piece about the immediate aftermath of World War II. And like mm-hmm. Americans are usually taught this very uh, um, Pollyanna story about how we liberated the camps and we welcomed all of the, the people that were in them to this plural, pluralistic liberal order. But that's not at all what happened, right? Like, like, like yeah. General Patton was a virulent anti-Semite, uh, as were most a lot of American government officials. And um, uh, you write that they were uh, whipping uh, fascists and Nazi collaborators into the nucleus of what they hoped would be a new fighting force against the Soviet Union. So could you introduce everyone to first, like uh, Irish Ira Hirschman, the first oh, yeah. witness you mm-hmm. you talk about a lot, and then just maybe more contextualize, like or bring people into this new um, rewriting of immediately after World War II. Yeah, well, I mean, I could just also say how I got because this is this piece is sort of a uh, like part of a a thing that actually comes out of a, an attempt to kind of. Uh, I don't know, like uh, go on a journey of like self uh, immigrant self discovery, I, I guess, you know, like because I mean, I'm a I was born in the Soviet Union and um, uh, my family and I, we uh, left the Soviet Union, uh, Leningrad in 1989. And we uh, uh, lived in refugee camps in, uh, in Italy and in Austria for um, about seven months and um, then ended up in America. And then from there, sort of, uh, you know, we ended up in San Francisco. And then, like, that's kind of began my American uh, American life. I was nine years old. 
And, and so, um, and for me, you know, I, so we were Soviet Jews and, um, we were part of this wave of uh, Soviet Jewish immigration out of um, the so- out of the Soviet Union that was really started started in the 1970s and then really really took off like in the late 80s, uh, right before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and um, I always knew, you know, there was like, I mean, uh, you know, not always, but I kind of understood that there, as I got older, that there was obviously a political component to this. You know, that there it, it was part of this fight between the Soviet Union and America and a lot of people who left the Soviet Union were, you know, explicitly like anti-Soviet, you know, uh, were um, in various ways like my father was. And a lot of people were uh, basically have uh, ide- on, on an ideological level, you know, they were anti- anti-Soviet. And so they wanted to leave for like a, a more capitalist, a free country, you know, like America. And so um, like the sort of the fight between the Soviet, this communism and capitalism um, was kind of defined my um childhood and my immigration to America. And as I, later on, I understood that like this wave of immigration and, and and the, the reason why, um, you know, American sort of the border was just wide thrown wide open for, for hundreds of thousands of, of Soviet Jews. Um, and we were welcomed so, 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 so graciously here, uh, and treated like given VIP treatment as far as immigrants go. Um, it was because we were part of this Cold War project, which um, ha- had its origins actually uh, right after World War II, um, and it stretched all the way until the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was to uh, weaponize nationalism in in the Soviet Union. To um, because the Soviet Union is made up of a lot of different um, sort of well, I don't know. They're not nationalities. They're more like uh, ethnic uh, groups and linguistic groups, cultural groups, right? Because everything was very mixed up in the Soviet Union. But you know, you had different. Like nationalities, but also different religions and all these things. And so the idea was um, um, to accentuate those differences and so to focus on those differences. So if you're talking about, say, Ukrainians and living in the Soviet Union, you want to focus on Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian nationhood and like specifically Ukrainian history and how, you know, the Russian, uh, the Russians have always sort of tried to exploit you, right? And how this is continuing in the Soviet Union and sort of make it focus on, on like your uniqueness as a Ukrainian rather than as a Soviet citizen, right? So to, to deploy nationalisms um, against Soviet internationalism. And so B- balkanize the babushkas. Exactly. To, to, Boom. To, to, to carry forward. <laughs> that's our good. Grandma I like that. I want to steal that. Okay. Um, yeah, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of babushkas in the Balkans already. So, you know, you want to balkanize them a bit more. Um, but yeah, so uh, th- that's the idea. And so the reason that we uh, were kind of given VIP treatment and um, so much, so many resources in America uh, were, were sort of thrown at uh, our cause, you know, that we were championed uh, this, you know, the freedom of the Soviet Jews, the freedom to travel, the freedom to practice our religion, the freedom to, you know, learn, you know, quote unquote, our language, you know, Hebrew. Um, and like was part of this Cold War program uh, to weaponize nationalism. And uh, it was very effective. And a huge amount of resources were thrown at this and pretty much uh, you know, all these sort of, uh, all these, um, like, uh, U.S. government uh, propaganda radio stations like Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, um, and then, and then like, Radio Free Asia you know, that targeted, um, that targeted uh, Vietnam and, and China later on in Southeast Asia. Like, they were actually built primarily on, on this concept 
that you want to broadcast in specific you know languages of targeting groups within larger sort of internationalist kind of formations communist and soviet formations right and in order to break them up and so it, it i started to like think about that and 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 to try to put it into some kind of historical context. And so this project immigrants as a weapon sort of gr- has grown in scope a bit, but like that's the original, that was sort of the original idea behind it is to under- try to understand essentially where the hell I came from and how I ended up in, in America. Uh, and from that, you know, to kind of go back, I want to trace it um, to the beginning. Where did it start? You know, from, what was the origin story of this, of this program? Uh, and, and so, you know, th- that brings us to the end of World War II, where um, there was a lot of displaced people uh, all around Europe at the time. Um, you know, millions of people were displaced. There were these uh, displaced persons camps that were being run by the Allies, um, spread around Western Europe. And there were some Jewish survivors of the Holocaust there. Um, but predominantly, it was actually um, a lot of um, Eastern European um, people uh, that had... You know, in one way or another, uh, not all of them, but many of them have collaborated with uh, the Nazi Germany uh, in, their, in, their, in their own kind of home countries that were then taken over by the Soviet Union uh, after the war. And so you had this um, Western Europe basically just overflowing with um, uh, people that had collaborated uh, with Nazi Germany. And you had also them kind of living side by side with survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, and frequently, the people who had were running the camps, so the extermination camps, the concentration camps, um, you know, were basically like living, you know, in, in, in camps that were not next door, uh, but sometimes living in the same camps or living in near, nearby camps. So you had these kind of like opposing populations almost. Uh, some, some of the people who were um, it were essentially kind of enemy combatants or, or had been. Uh, and then you had the victims. And so the way that these two populations are treated after the war, the difference between the way they were treated, it shows kind of the, um, the, you can, sort of, you can see the origins of this, of this, uh, um, program to weaponize nationalism and to weaponize latent fascism or sort of fascist friendly or fascist adjacent sort of movements and ideologies in the service to, to fight against the Soviet Union. And so, What's what was interesting is that you had this guy um, who was uh, kind of a, a, a Ira Hirschman uh, who uh, was appointed as a UN representative uh, to to go and scope out like the situation in, in these displaced persons camps in uh, in Europe right after the war, and he was horrified uh, to find out that Jews uh, survivors of the Holocaust were treated as second-class citizens and uh, being housed in these horrible, filthy conditions in, in Germany. Um, sometimes they were being overseen by guards, uh, by former Nazis that had been, you know, guarding them in, in, in extermination camps, you know, that kind of stuff. They didn't have proper food, they didn't have proper uh, um, clothing. They lived in these horrible, unsanitary conditions. Um, so that was the Jews. And then there was a whole other reality when, you, when, when he toured camps that were, um, uh, that were uh, housing, um, let's say, like U- U- Ukrainian refu- uh, displaced persons. And, you, and a lot of these Ukrainian dis- displaced people were um, actually uh, had collaborated with Nazi Germany and who had taken part in some form or another in administrating occupied Ukrainian territory uh, under Nazi occupation. And so he found out that what was happening is that... Um, the U.S. Army that was overseeing these d- displaced persons camps had a, essentially a policy of treating uh, 
former Nazi collaborators, giving them preferential treatment over, over Jews because they were seen as useful. They were seen as anti-communist. They were seen as anti-Soviet. They were seen as like a cadre that could be used to, you know, whip up into a, into a potential fighting force in what uh, many believed was, was a, a, a war that, uh, with the Soviet Union or that was just around the corner. And, and while Jews were seen as actually kind of sympathetic to the Soviet Union because a lot of people were actually liberated by the Red Army. And so they were not anti-communist enough and they were actually um, sometimes sympathetic to the communist cause. And so, and they were just treated like shit, treated like garbage. Uh, and so he, he himself as an American Jew, he was horrified by this. And he wrote this kind of amazing book um, that, that looked at, uh, that described, you know, on the ground, uh, very visceral reporting from the time uh, about how America was trying to rehabilitate Nazis and, and rehabilitate fascism and give it a, a kind of a pro-democratic spin in what it believed it was a coming war with, with the Soviet Union and with communism and the need for having these sort of loyal armies and foot soldiers, um, propaganda workers that could be, that could be used in this, in, this, in this war that was already, you know, heating up. And so um, it started right after the war, I mean, almost before even the war ended. Uh, and why I find that interesting is because I can trace the stuff from, from there like all the way to, you know, my own experience and my own family's experiences of, of, of weaponizing causes and, and movements and nationalist movements that could be seen as anti-communist in nature and, and, and deploying that. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can, you can see like, for example, the, um, when FDR ran for his, what was it, his fourth term inside the democratic party long before uh bernie sanders you know you had henry wallace who is his vice president for most for like the solid majority of fdr's presidency replaced by harry truman because democratic operatives were afraid that fdr would die in office and you would have this guy that was very very sympathetic to the communist cause henry yeah. wallace like become president so they they kind of had this like color revolution where they really replaced him with a uh, with Truman, who is just like this, like fail son that somehow found his his way into a uh, high office, he's, he's he's real dumb. He made he made George W. Bush, or at least the character of George W. Bush, look like a like a like a real Yale graduate. I guess <laughs> I don't know, but um, yeah. What, uh, what, so ha could you connect the dots then? Like, is as a Jewish uh soviet immigrant why were you given the star treatment in the 80s when in the 40s you would be in like a a, a barrack somewhere yeah the reason that there was this, such a big change is because um when I mean, the jews were different right and 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 the context uh and sort of the ideas that these jews were carried in, in, in within their within them was different i mean the jews that were liberated um and that lived through uh second world war um, were not like necessarily anti-communist. I mean, they 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 were liberated by the Red Army, and they they actually knew that the, pretty much the only reason they 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 were able to survive was because of the Red Army. I mean, it's just so so the Red Army liberated many camps, and and actually Jews at the time generally were very sympathetic. You know, all across Europe were sympathetic to socialist ideas in in in, in various forms. I mean, they weren't necessarily communist. Uh, they weren't necessarily, you know, Bolshevik, but they were sympathetic to socialism, generally speaking, um, as a lot of people were in, in, in Europe at the time. I mean, you know, like these ideas were really powerful and, uh, and you know, fascism was an, a, a, a reaction, right, to the popularity of communist parties and, and socialist I, I, ideas in Europe. I mean, there was a direct sort of 
um, like an, a, kind of a, an attack on, on those things, right? As a, it kind of took the guise of a populist uh, ideology that was cared about the people, right? And even took some of these socialist sort of slogans and ideas, but it uh, perverted them and, and made them, you know, uh, didn't actually challenge this, the, 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 the sort of ruling class. It was actually an instrument of the ruling class. Fascism was. And so, so you have a lot of these people who are sympathetic to communists. And so they were not useful in the war with the Soviet Union, right? In fact, they were dangerous because like these people were, you know, like you don't want them, you don't want them to, uh, you know, you want to let them to, into America because you, believe, you actually see them as, as communist infiltrators who just sort of spread their, you know, filthy virus all over America. And so, so and that's what happened. Uh, Jews were excluded, um, specifically excluded from uh, the 1948 uh, immigration bill. Um, so survivors of the Holocaust were excluded from immigrating to America. And the, 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 the law that allowed these displaced people to come in actually made allowances for um, uh, Nazi collaborators to come in. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't explicitly written like that, but that was the, that, it, uh, that there was like all these different quotas on the, on the various nationalities that, that were put in place. And the timing of like, um, the way that it was, it was, it's in the fine print. It's kind of complicated, but it, it, in essence, it excluded Jews and let in like Nazi collaborators or potential Nazi collaborators from the Baltics, from Eastern Europe, from Ukraine. Um, and so like, and in the discussions of that law, it was pretty clear that the, a lot of senators and congressmen uh, didn't want Jews to come in. I mean, they actually were very explicit about this. And so, um, be and because they were seen as sympathetic and so, but the Jews, uh, of, Sort of the late Soviet Union were different, um, and in generally the vibe of the late Soviet Union was different. I mean, very few people in the Soviet Union in the seventies and eighties and nineties. I mean, early nineties. I mean, were you know like hardcore pro communist. You know, this, it was it was not like a. It was kind of it was people were not really ideological. They people were very skeptical of their own government or their own society. They understood it was sort of a failing society. People looked to the West more and more, um, and. What's interesting about Jews is that they, it was a kind of an early form of almost identity politics, I guess, sort of this, which is because when, when this kind of this, um, I guess it's like a baby boomer class, uh, of Soviet baby boomer class that grew up post-war so, post uh, you know, uh, generation that grew up in relative affluence compared to their, to their parents uh, and, and relative stability um, of the Soviet Union, whereas the Soviet Union was getting back on its feet. It was pretty prosperous compared to the 30s and, and, and early 40s. And, and, and they kind of got like, you know, they started getting kind of bougie, right? And they started to look around for like, what makes me special? And for a lot of Soviet Jews who grew up completely secular, um, like they suddenly found out that, hey, I'm not just some like, you know, sort of this gray Soviet citizen, you know, nameless and kind of like, no, there's nothing interesting about me. I'm actually a Jew and I'm like part of this people that have this long history goes back thousands and thousands of years. And we actually have a state and it's Israel and it's like getting to kick ass, right? It's like starting to just like, it's just kicking all these Arabs, uh, all this Arab ass all over the place. You know, it's like, it's, it, I'm, it makes me cooler. It makes me feel kind of good about myself. It's differentiating me from the masses. And so that's a, that was like a big thing in the Soviet Union. And so it started out kind of grassroots, you know, and, and the idea is that you want to find your identity, you know, like you want to discover your, your, what makes you special. And, 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 and when that started happening, obviously Israel and America began to be very interested in this, in this movement, because for Israel, obviously, 
it was important because they wanted Israel wanted to get as many Jews into Israel as possible uh, because to 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 buttress its population right against sort of the you know the Palestinian quote unquote threat because the Palestinian population was much greater than than the Jewish population in Israel at the time and. Um, and America saw it as actually something much more radical, you know, uh, that it was a Jewish identity and Jewish nationalism. Um, this reawakening could be actually used as a bludgeon against the Soviet Union, as you know, it could turn people against the Soviet Union, right? And people are already turning against the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was pretty um, like crude about suppressing this I, this Jewish national identity movement. You know, you you couldn't you. you People had to study the Torah, whatever, or Hebrew, you know, in these little cells in their apartments, you know, that they, um, it was like almost like a revolutionary underground activity and they'd get broken up and people would sometimes get, be afraid to go to synagogues because you'd get like denounced at your work because you'd be seen as, you know, like, because Zionism that was at the time was seen as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a problematic ideology as an imperial ideo- imperialist ideology. So there's all these things that made Soviet Jews in the late, in the late Soviet Union already anti-Soviet in in their perspective, and so so they were seen as easily sort of weaponized against the Soviet Union for propaganda purposes and and, and to kind of force the, the Soviet Union to uh, open up its borders to them and, and admit that hey, there's all these people who actually want to live in the Soviet Union, right? They actually given the chance to flee, and so it's a it's a really serious problem for the Soviet Union, like as a as a not just on an international level, but domestically, like it weakened its position in, in a major way. And so that's the big difference, you know? So in the forties, Jews were seen as a threat to, to America. Uh, in the eighties and seventies, they were seen as, as, a, as, as an asset to America. Wow. That's, 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 that's really uh, quite an incredible uh, like inflection point. That, that's really, really, really <laughs> what, what, what a difference yeah. 30 years makes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we recently did um, our last uh, Patreon bonus episode was on the history of anti-Semitism throughout Europe and America and the role of like uh, conspiracy theory and particularly this like international Bolshevik Jew is a key component of the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe. And it's really fascinating to see not just in this recent period you know in the 20th century but all throughout history this push and pull of the of jewish people being a very useful uh political tool essentially Mm -hmm. to to um further further certain political agendas on behalf of the ruling class so it's fascinating to see that shift over a short you know 40 years is a short period of time in the you know in the broad reach of history so really interesting to see that shift yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. The Soviet Union is, you know, it didn't last that long. Right? It's, it was very short. Um, it, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's lasted really only several gener- generations. And by the time that like this last generation, the baby boomer generation, you know, actually, uh, there's a lot of parallels between American baby boomers and, and Soviet baby boomers in, in the sense that, I mean, well, you know, the, the Soviet baby boomers kind of almost, you know, just basically destroyed the Soviet, <laughs> the Soviet Union. Um, but, and baby boomers in America basically destroyed America. Although it's not, it has, it's not collapsing uh, uh, in, in this, in, it's not going to like, it's not going to let go so easily, you know? It's uh, taking a little longer for American boomers it, it, to bleed us. Bleed yeah, us yeah, no, they're, before, they, yeah, uh, they're a lot more vicious. Um, it's it's yeah. because we already had Pizza Hut. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like... 
Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. So they, was, they didn't so have was, to go there, as far. Yeah, there was a lot of you know, like the Jew, Jews were just one part of it. I mean, all all the different republics, you know, um, from the from the Baltics, from Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine. I mean, all of these had uh, to one to to one extent or another, like uh, grassroots sort of nationalistic sort of movements and re- or reawakenings. And when uh, Gorbachev really kind of opened things up, and uh, in the, in the Perestroika era, like like all these things just sort of came, you know, and lifted controls over what, what could be read, what could be what, over literature and things like that. Like these things just exploded in the late eighties. And I, I don't think anyone really was like expecting it to just sort of blow up like that. And so all these nationalisms, especially in the Eastern Europe, like uh, Eastern Europe part of the Soviet Union, like they really blew up in the eighties and Jewish nationalism was like one of the big ones. And it's, it was huge. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like you probably how how old how old is it? What's the average age here or the median age here in on this podcast? Thirty. Uh, I'm thirty-two. David's thirty-three. 33. Chris, you're 32. thirty-two. Also. Yep. Okay, so I'm a little bit older, but so you don't remember. But then, like, and I wouldn't remember this either because I'm just you know I was I was just a, a tiny kid. But like, you'd have huge rallies, you know, attended by uh, Vice President George Bush, um, DC, you know, about like let my people go, you know, the sort of like uh, like the Soviet Union would be called the Red Pharaoh, um, you know, and there'd be like all these things equating, you know, a swastika next to next to um, hammer next and to yeah, yeah next to hammer and sickle, and it was interesting because there's actually Red there's, Pharaoh sounds cool as fuck. It is kind of cool, yeah. It is cool. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. and, and 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 what's interesting is that there's actually like a kind of a symbiotic relationship between. I don't know if I don't know if you'd call them the baby boomer generated class here in America, but there's this both in America and in the Soviet Union, like the, this gener- generation of Jews underwent a very similar trans- transformation, actually, from moving from a kind of more of a left wing and socialist kind of uh, viewpoint to a more of a conservative and nationalistic and right wing viewpoint, because you know Jews went from being you know involved in the civil rights movement to being kind of the leading neoconservatives right and like their their support for jewish liberation out of the soviet union actually tracks with that with that change right so absolutely in, yeah. instead of being more yeah inclusive and communal about who you help you actually focus on your own identity and so there's actually a similar thing that's going on in america it's like their jews are also um rediscovering what it means to be jewish and it it actually tracks with the uh, with with Israel becoming a much stronger state, you know, becoming kind of a more of a legitimate state, kind of winning, winning, suddenly winning wars and becoming kind of badass, you know, in their eyes, and 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 there's like a pride that 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 of of being a Jew and being connected to the strong Jewish state that it, that was taking place in both America and in the Soviet Union. So they actually were in parallel, and they fed off each other. Um, and so there was, and, and, and so on the one hand, there was like a grassroots quality to it. On the other hand, of course, um, uh, this actually the, the kind of the new conservative movement was really instrumental in, um, in, engaged in, in this, in this, in this struggle to liberate, you know, the so- Soviet Jews. Um, and that was a big project of, the, of this, of, 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 of emerging new conservative movement in America. Yeah. Yeah. You know, d- depending on like when your family came to America, you know, like, like the Jewish side of my family, like came from the the uh the pogroms yeah and so like my grandparents were already like first generation americans uh in like the 30s when they were living in the lower east side of manhattan and like you know like my grandpa was like a big guy that would like 
punch Gentiles who who would like tease little Jews going to shul. Like he was awesome. like he just like walk through like he was like beating people up and like that was cool and everything. But then like his kids, like my oldest uncle, is like now an evangelical Christian. Like he Whoa. converted. Interesting. Yeah, easy. Like he lives in Boca and like converted to evangelical Christianity. And it's like that is totally the baby boomer set. Is like don't uh, be like this roughneck. Uh, uh, like Jewish punk <laughs> in the Lower East Side. Instead, like go to Boca and like marry your secretary and uh, uh, and and convert to her 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 brand of Christianity. This is not uh, it's a very uh, specific. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah, he's cool. We're, we're he, he's a, a rebel. Right I mean, yeah. like, but but yeah. So the transformation from being you know again like Jews in the Lower East Side were pretty much like. Uh, some some flavor of left wing, yeah, right? Uh, predominantly, um, and like the transformation of that to being basically kind of a neoconservative in your world, maybe being a bit liberal in your in your social politics, but being very very conservative in foreign foreign politics, and being sort of like the, the moving away from this sort of communal identity and politics to being neoliberal in essence, right? And and like. It's it's kind of I didn't re- fully realize this because we came to America in 1989 and so like I came to America I mean we came in 1990 we left in 1989 and so I came to America when it was like full on neoliberal I mean it was just beginning the like the sort of the ramping up fully of neoliberalism right the first um like the, the Clinton era and all that stuff and so like the only America that I knew was like neoliberal and on right and and, and it's the only I it's the only America that my parents knew so that was like our, our only frame of reference I had no idea that like and all the Jews that we met, you know, American Jews uh, in, in San Francisco, like going to this reform synagogue that we were, you know, invited to and having these sponsor families that would sort of like show us the ropes of how to be a, a you know, a good reform American Jew. Um, like this is this is the third of the aisle in the ethnic section exactly. that has, has the matzo ball soup. <laughs> we, and, yeah, we were, yeah, we were this like, con- yeah. this concludes your orientation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like we don't actually you just sort of. Yeah, like you, I don't, we don't know what these little like, squiggly things mean. We just we just read the, the trans, you know, transliteration of the uh, yeah, like of the of the sounds that, that they make. We have no idea what the hell we're talking about. Um yeah, like, uh, I mean, all I knew were like, you know, lawyers, uh, you know, it's basically the prof- professional managerial class, you know, just basically mostly lawyers and doctors, mostly lawyers, I think, you know, it, 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 like that was the, so I, for me, to me, like the idea that all these, there were these Jews not that long ago that were communists, that were socialists, that were pretty radical, you know, and like, that was just, you know, a couple of generations back. I mean, it was, it was like, seemed so weird and un, un, uh, like for a long time, I couldn't even really square it with the, with the Jew that, with the type of Jew that I, that I actually knew in America. Like they didn't connect for me at all. So, yeah. So like, you know, the, 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 the nationalist identity stuff actually grew in America just like it did in the Soviet Union. And uh, yeah. like, I mean, American Jews, just Soviet Jews are like hardcore Zionists, you know, they are usually pretty conservative very pro-capitalist. Um, I mean, you know, like, uh, and, and, and usually like at this point, a lot of them are just, you know, Fox news, uh, like Trump supporters. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll link to Yasha's, um, Substack and particularly the first, uh, uh, the first essay as part of that series. It's really great read. Um, the story is great. The writing is great. So check that out and uh, be like me and subscribe to a Substack immediately. Oh, oh awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And you plus know, things, one. 
<laughs> and thank you so much for coming on Ironweeds. This was a fascinating conversation, really wide ranging. And uh, we are grateful to you for your time. No, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. So the post office is in trouble, which is not good, folks. Yeah, it's a perennial problem that Republicans have uh, manufactured mainly because the post office is one of the largest uh, union employers in uh, in the country. So they need to nip that in the bud just well, I guess nip that in the bud in the sense that it is as old as our country. So maybe it's not uh, it's in full flower, the post office, but they want to they want to kill that thing. I just want to say on the on the outset. Um, we're we're uh, reading this piece from BuzzFeed News, and the lead image has a stellar fit. Steal this look from this postal worker of like black leggings, gray shorts, cardigan, and blue button down shirt, and face mask and sunglasses and baseball cap. So you cool. will find this article in the show notes. Yeah, check this check this postal worker out. Killer fit. Really, just like all the ways that postal workers like dress uh, with like. With the uniform, but like the uniform code seems like a little uh, uh, flexible. You can riff. Yeah, I, can riff I, I, I love it. I really, I really do kind of love it. I, I want, I want that to be like the new camo look. Is like, like let's you know, postal worker shit. Yeah, and like for a while, I think it was like H and M had like a bunch of NASA shit for some reason. They're like, I want postal worker stuff. Like, make that that, that stuff's cool. You're going to go postal swag 2020? (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of people don't know that, uh, one, that the U.S. Postal Service is constitutionally mandated. Um, It is in the Constitution that we will have a postal delivery service. Two, a lot of people don't know that the Postal Service is entirely independently funded through sales. It does not receive any taxpayer money. And I guess maybe the third thing. Um, is also that the Postal Service highly subsidize, is highly subsidized by urban areas to rural areas. It's urban postal service that pays for rural postal service. So if the Postal Service were to die, it would actually be Trump country that would be hardest hit of all um, because delivery rates would skyrocket for them through private carriers. Um, so these are all the reasons that you should like the Postal Service. Uh and yeah, it's, you know, the the government is handing out bailouts for all of these industries, but the Postal Service asks for a fairly modest um, cash bailout. And, you know, as always, the Republicans are hard at work trying to defeat it. So. But on the bright side, uh, there's been uh, several seemingly successful campaigns to get people to start buying stamps to uh, help the Postal Service in light of the government not seeming to want to offer it a cash bailout. And most importantly, it is uh, you buy the stamps and then not use them right. uh, for a while. So it's sort of like a loan, like a no interest loan. Oh, huh. OK. So is does this have any practical capability of actually saving the post office in this trying time? If you organized enough people to do it, maybe, you know, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, you, someone would have to run the numbers. I don't actually know what the, how this would actually help people like, like how much this could actually uh, save. So it's estimated that the Postal Service through the covid pandemic will uh, operate at a loss of twenty two billion dollars over the next 18 months and fifty four billion dollars over the long term. So that's a lot of fucking stamps. Yeah, um, that's a lot of stamps. 
But you know, I mean, this is also like a cool time to uh, use the post office in a way that you haven't before. You know, you can buy a, a giant stack of um, postcards and get postcard stamps, which are a separate kind of stamp. Although if you want to give uh, more money to the post office than they would normally get, put a full forever stamp on that thing, on that sucker and... And you, you might give them a little extra money, but, you know, it means, like, send postcards to each other, draw shit, send stuff to each other. I think that'd be cool. That'd be a cool thing to do to people. Yeah. Two people, so four it, people, it, with people. <laughs> so w- w- why is the um, the post office, if we have record things being shipped by them uh, and they have been, you know, um, like in the black from actual retail service, um, why is the post office actually struggling right now? So in uh, 2006, I believe, yeah, the 2006 uh, Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, um, that's, so that's when uh, Bush is in the White House and he has a Republican-controlled Congress. They forced the post office to uh, uh, fund its pension, like, way, way, way into the future, like 50 years in the future, so that, they, so that they've been, like, sort of artificially been kneecapped uh by this weird thing that congress can like tell them to do without uh like like they they don't have any they don't take any taxes but they they, and they're for the most part like a a a company that operates you know by their own revenue but then also congress can tell them to do whatever they want and so that's why they've been having that's why they've chronically been having a problem but more specifically right now there has actually been a what the article says is there's been a devastating drop in revenue uh because um people actually aren't delivering as or sending each other as much stuff as as they used to during the this pandemic even even uh you know though the vast majority of the stuff that Amazon delivers isn't coming from private carriers like you know uh, like well, I, I I am a sinner I I consume and I actually buy a lot of stuff through uh, through Amazon over the years um and I know huh, it's really so bad you criticize capitalism yeah exactly, and exactly. yet you use it curious <laughs> yeah it's al- it's almost like uh being a cyclist and not having a car and living in an urban center has heavily incentivized me to use online retail and there's essentially a monopoly on it and i have not uh gone entirely out of my way at every moment to avoid that monopoly uh like a good socialist so yeah uh very very bad on me but i have noticed uh as a matter of fact that the vast majority of the things i do get through amazon come by the usps and so, so I, you know, Amazon being the greatest uh, customer, I would imagine, of um, the USPS and the fact that Bezos most recently got $24 billion extra personal wealth uh, because of the upsurge in uh, activity on Amazon during this pandemic, which, by the way, accounts to about $10,000 per known uh, COVID uh, infection. Not like those things are directly correlated, but just to give you guys a, uh, a sense of the orders of magnitude associated with this. Um, it's very bizarre to me that the um, the USPS is struggling. Um, so the uh, reason for that is like actually they aren't charging enough for their services. Well, so the the reason for that is that um, packages delivered by Amazon generally the USPS doesn't intervene in that um, in that process until sort of like the last mile. So. FedEx or UPS are handling all of the shipping from the 
uh, like the warehouse up to, say, your local post office. And then your local post office does that last little bit. And that last bit is the most expensive part of shipping. So essentially, Amazon is offloading the cheapest part of shipping shipping to private uh, private entities, and then it's the post office that has to do the most labor-intensive and time-intensive and costly part of the, the delivery process. Yeah, but why is it, you know, if they're operated like a business, you know, as far as, you know, quote-unquote government service uh, is, um, then why don't they just charge accordingly to make, you know, more than margin on their service? Like, if it's the most expensive, why does it cost the most? I would imagine if they charged more, then Amazon would just drop them as a distributor altogether. Um, well, I, th- I think the way that it works is UPS and FedEx, UPS and FedEx uh, um, negotiate those rates with the Postal Service, and if and the, by nature of the Postal Service, and they're they're obligated to serve every single person, then they have to they get strong armed in negotiating, uh, where UPS will say, well, we can either do it the full way or uh, right to the door or you can get something and um uh uh and you do it and ups just and or or ups just won't serve this one person like out in bumfuck nowhere and up and usps is like well we have to so they 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 serve it no matter what and they can't and i imagine ups and fedex just won't negotiate with them to pay for that but the USPS is obligated to send it to them. So yeah. they well, can't do anything about it. I, I guess the point I'm trying to bring up is that I don't feel like solidarity or charity uh, patronage of the USPS is going to solve any of these actual structural or negotiated, um, you know, rate differential problems that seem to be the case. Like if in fact there's a greater volume of packages being transported by the USPS now than there were, you know, before this crisis, but for whatever reason, they have a, you know, economic uh, shortfall that, uh, that seems to indicate we need a different solution than just everybody buy stamps. I guess the reason I thought it was a wildflower is mostly because there has been a big public outcry in support of the USPS. And that, to me, seems like a good thing. I've heard there's, you know, been rhetoric over the years that the USPS is total trash and that, like, you know, they they I've I've heard this, especially from like family members uh, that, you know, it's private entities do a better job. That's not been my experience whatsoever with package delivery. Uh, But, you know, it's at least a little heartening that people are. You know, really uh, showing a lot of support publicly for the USPS. And I'm hoping that that grounds well, even if, you know, buying stamps isn't going to save the USPS. uh, At least the fact that there's some like an outpouring of public support for them makes me feel heartened that it'll be hard for Republicans to get rid of them. Hmm. USPS are my troops. Like I I defend (laughs) I I defend postal workers like uh, Republicans defend cops like they can do no wrong. (laughs) They're like blue no matter what. But the particular shade of blue of postal workers, not cops. It's also worth noting that the USPS, 27 percent of their workforce is black workers, which Mm -hmm. is and that's historically been the case that USPS has been a really good um, has been a reliable uh, source of employment for black Americans. That's going out for, you know, many, many decades uh, since long before uh, black people were able to get jobs anywhere else, especially well-paying jobs. So. 
There's, in fact, even a, a book called There's Always Work at the Post Office by Philip Rubio that, that talks about that, that uh, dynamic. That, um, you know, usually we hear this about the military that, you know, like, oh, it's one of the first integrated uh, business um, or like places to that uh, in American culture that you could work. But the post office is uh, really important in that in that, too. And also, we wouldn't have like angry, uh, sexually frustrated literature from Charles Bukowski without the post office either. <laughs> <a good> point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the post office uh, is is obviously a necessary uh, structure uh, of our society and civilization. And it's something that, you know, um, like I didn't actually know before this interview that they were, uh, you know, cash flow positive, that they don't actually take any tax money at all. Um, and I find that really surprising. Um, and it seems like a really weird contradiction of the constitutional obligation to exist, but not the, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the ability to raise levies. I guess they, they do in the, in the form of uh, stamps, but I don't know. It just, it seems like a really weird problem to have. I'm really glad that, um, everybody is, uh, showing up with so much support for the postal workers. Um, but it really just seems like a problem that like changing the price of stamps would solve and that like you know um i guess the, the big threat is uh to be undercut by the the private uh industry that you know would effectively be like a a, a scab if uh there was any type of like uh you know strike on the uh by the postal workers but yeah it just it it, it seems weird to me i think that we can solve this um other ways but yeah if, if you want to go out and get you know that buddy holly stamp collection now is as good a time as any I think right now you can get frogs. You can get frog stamps. And you can get dragons, too. You can get dragons. That's pretty hot. Tigers, tigers. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, so if I uh, uh, keep this solidly in the realm of wildflowers, I just want to maybe we could round this out with um, my vision of the future for the post office. Sort of a a, a very um, uh, Bruning, Brunig kind of a, a, a vision, you know, like the People's Policy Project kind of thing. But um, so... In other countries, the post office is not only for sending mail, it's also a banking institution. It's like a public banking institution. And because the post office is really the only federal agency that has a a physical office in pretty much any place in the country, uh, it's a great venue to uh, provide other services. So my vision for the post office would be uh, not only like you were saying, Chris, I like have a little bit of like public support that is not directly from revenue, but also they could get into retail banking, like just very, very simple uh, banking for um, to like stash your money somewhere safe, uh, PO bo- free PO boxes for like people that are homeless so that they have a mm-hmm, address mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would allow them to uh, like get work and make a bank account, like all this stuff that is necessary to have like a stable life. And, uh, and I also uh, had this, um, I'd heard this vision a couple times. It was popular in like the early 2000s and it died out and I don't know why it didn't come back. But like this idea that you could uh, um, actually maybe even suspend mail service in a given area and give everyone these like tricked out 
postal boxes and then like it would encourage people to like meet together in places to like collect their mail and all their stuff and like they could be like refrigerated boxes and it'd be like really cool stuff so i don't know i i think that there's all sorts of really cool stuff that you could do with the post office it should also be an isp for internet let's be real <laughs> but like i i i just I, I i want nothing but the best for the post office i hope they do better so in the chapter that folks are about to hear, which is titled Objections, um, here's where I actually do really, really agree with Kropotkin. And I think this sort of uh, plays a role in, you know, Kropotkin does romanticize working people and their ability to spontaneously organize and just get all this shit done. And I'm, I'm skeptical of those claims. But what Kropotkin argues in Chapter 12, Objections, is that people, the, the wage motive for work is both unnecessary and actually counterproductive. Um, and he's basically arguing that, like, the wage incentive does not produce the best work and the best, especially in the context of like industrial production, it does not produce the best product. And uh, there's one point where he says that, um, you know, he refers to uh, Kokani, which is this, I believe it's Scottish or Gaelic. I'm not I'm not sure, but it basically means um, bad pay, bad work. Uh, it, it technically means, I think, go slow. Uh, but it's essentially the idea that, you know, if you're not getting paid well, don't work hard. And there's all, he makes this other point that, like, if you as an as a wage surf, if you ever do work hard, say there's some kind of push for a production deadline or something, then that level of production becomes expected and folded into, you know, your your existing wage. And so you can never like be as fully productive as you could be because you that that productivity will just be exploited. And I've seen that play out in many jobs that I've had where... Yeah, that's so intuitive. That's so intuitive. Yeah, it's very... It, it just it plays out so clearly. Anybody who's ever worked like manual labor or retail or anything like that is like you can't work as hard as you possibly can because then that just becomes expected of you. There can be a combination of uh, desires there where like you have, you know, I don't know, like I can think of uh, occupations that like are like oh i actually feel pretty good about my pay and then i so like really working hard but then at the same time they're like wait but if i work absolutely as hard as i can then that will become the new normal <laughs> i will yeah, not be able to survive exactly i will not be able to survive a 40 hour work week every day in and out at that level of operational you know intensity and that, that's well, just and you know, rational. Another, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it goes hand in hand with another point that Kropotkin makes, which is that when we work for ourselves, when we work for the enrichment directly of ourselves and those around us, the people that we work with, we work harder and we work better. And that is like absolutely, in my experience, working like any kind of working class job, totally the case. And he also talks about, uh, and this is something that always stuck with me from we've we've before mentioned Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, and it's always stuck with me is the character of the slacker, the loaf, the, the person who's not willing to pull their weight in a society. And Kropotkin says, like, this person is not a threat to the anarcho-communist system whatsoever, because first of all, they're few and far between. And second, there are social uh, there there are social tools that we can use to discipline that kind of behavior. It doesn't rely on the state and it doesn't rely on a wage system. And in every job that I've ever had where somebody was a loafer or a slacker, uh, 
that person, the only reason that that person stuck around was because of the boss. It wasn't because of the coworkers. Like I've been in countless work environments where there was somebody who just didn't pull their fucking weight. And if it had been up to their coworkers, they would have been out of there. But because it was up to a boss, they stuck around because, you know, a boss doesn't want to have to pay to train somebody new or they don't want to, you know, rock the boat or whatever other reason it is. So, yeah, I, I firmly fall in the anarcho-communist camp in so far as I don't think people need money as a work incentive. Uh, pro- the the proof is in the pudding of this podcast because <clears throat> we are not making any money um, and it's a lot of work. Hey, but also hey, hey shout out to uh, the Patreon supporters. You're shout the out hottest, to the Patreons. sexiest, Thank smartest, you, you most brilliant and beautiful people on the planet. We love you. You're all so hot and so smart. It's true. Um, but no, and I think, and it's not just that. Like we engage, people go to the fucking gym and they're not getting paid. People will engage in manual labor without a wage incentive just fine. And we have done it for thousands of years and we would continue to do it under anarcho-communism. I mean, like imagine just like, just think about how uh, anxious you are right now, not being able to go out. Like I, this, this <laughs> pandemic has has done nothing but sort of uh, um, confirm that people don't want to just sit in their house and be lazy all day. Like like a lot of people want to get out and do something and and I am extremely people. lazy and yet I still seek out uh, pleasurable work, including of the physical variety. So yeah. you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. It's true. <laughs> All right. So that's what you're about to hear. Chapter 12, Objections from Peter Kropotkin. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you to Yasha for joining us. It was a fantastic interview. I hope you all enjoy it. Um, And I guess uh, you can find us on Twitter. Ironweedspod. You can probably still find us on Instagram. Ironweedspod. And, uh, hey, you know, if you've got comments, questions, concerns, feedback of the positive variety, uh, only positive, <laughs> I don't really care, uh, please, please shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Uh, check out our Patreon. This last bonus episode that we did on the history of anti-Semitism and contemporary conspiracy theory is, I think, really, really great. It's long. It's uh, information dense. It's, it took a ton of research um, and plays on a lot of themes that we just heard from Yasha, as well as, you know, other shit that's going on with like white supremacy and uh, and fear of you know mistrust in institutions and fear of the kind of communist other who is making you stay home during the covid pandemic and all of that stuff so the episode goes long and deep just like how we know our listeners like it yeah we know you like it long and deep but it's not the size of the boat it's the motion of the the ocean ocean. yeah though it seems like your ocean requires a small craft advisory oof that's a very nice uh that's that's a nice (laughs) deep cut deep cut uh, to the bloodhound gang bloodhound gang <sighs> All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Peace. Chapter 12 Objections. Let us now examine the principal objections put forth against communism. Most of them are evidently caused by a simple misunderstanding, yet they raise important questions and merit our attention. It is not for us to answer the objections raised by authoritarian communism. We ourselves hold with them. Civilized nations have suffered too much in the long, hard struggle for the emancipation of the individual 
to disown their past work and to tolerate a government that would make itself felt in the smallest details of a citizen's life, even if that government had no other aim than the good of the community. Should an authoritarian socialist society ever succeed in establishing itself, it could not last. General discontent would soon force it to break up or to reorganize itself on principles of liberty. It is of an anarchist communist society we are about to speak, a society that recognizes the absolute liberty of the individual, that does not admit of any authority, and makes use of no compulsion to drive men to work. Limiting our studies to the economic side of the question, let us see if such a society, composed of men as they are today, neither better nor worse, neither more nor less industrious, would have a chance of successful development. The objection is known. If the existence of each is guaranteed, and the necessity of earning wages does not compel men to work, nobody will work. Every man will lay the burden of his work on another if he is not forced to do it himself. Let us first remark the incredible levity with which this objection is raised, without taking into consideration that the question is in reality merely to know, on the one hand, whether you effectively obtain by wage work the results you aim at, and, on the other, whether voluntary work is not already more productive today than work stimulated by wages, a question which would require profound study. But whereas in exact sciences men give their opinion on subjects infinitely less important and less complicated after serious research, after carefully collecting and analyzing facts, on this question they will pronounce judgment without appeal, resting satisfied with any one particular event, such as, for example, the want of success of a communist association in America. They act like the barrister, who does not see in the counsel for the opposite side a representative of a cause or an opinion contrary to his own, but a simple adversary in an oratorical debate, and if he be lucky enough to find a repartee, does not otherwise care to justify his cause. Therefore, the study of this essential basis of all political economy, the study of the most favorable conditions for giving society the greatest amount of useful products with the least waste of human energy, does not advance. They limit themselves to repeating commonplace assertions, or else they pretend ignorance of our assertions. What is most striking in this levity is that even in capitalist political economy, you already find a few writers compelled by facts to doubt the axiom put forth by the founders of their science, that the threat of hunger is man's best stimulant for productive work. They begin to perceive that in production a certain collective element is introduced, which has been too much neglected up till now, and which might be more important than personal gain. The inferior quality of wage work, the terrible waste of human energy in modern agriculture and industrial labor, the ever-growing quantity of pleasure-seekers, who today load their burden on others' shoulders, the absence of a certain animation in production that is becoming more and more apparent. All this begins to preoccupy the economists of the classical school. Some of them ask themselves if they have not got on the wrong track, if the imaginary evil being— that was supposed to be tempted exclusively by a bait of lucre or wages, really exists. This heresy penetrates even into universities. It is found in books of orthodox economy. This does not hinder a great many socialist reformers to remain partisans of individual remuneration and defending the old citadel of wagedom, notwithstanding that it is being delivered over stone by stone to the assailants by its former defenders. They fear that without compulsion, the masses will not work. 
But during our own lifetime, have we not heard the same fears expressed twice? By the anti-abolitionists in America before slave emancipation, and by the Russian nobility before the liberation of the serfs. Without the whip, the Negro will not work, said the anti-abolitionist. Free from their master's supervision, the serfs will leave the fields uncultivated, said the Russian serf owners. It was the refrain of the French nobleman in 1789, the refrain of the Middle Ages, a refrain as old as the world, and we shall hear it every time there is a question of sweeping away injustice. And each time, actual facts give it the lie. The liberated peasant of 1792 plowed with a wild energy unknown to his ancestors. The emancipated former slave works more than his father's, and the Russian peasant, after having honored the honeymoon of his emancipation by celebrating Fridays as well as Sundays, has taken up work with as much eagerness as his liberation was the more complete. There, where the soil is his, he works desperately. That is the exact word for it. The anti-abolitionist refrain can be of value to slave owners. As to the slaves themselves, they know what it is worth, as they know its motive. Moreover, who but economists taught us that if a wage earner's work is but indifferent, an intense and productive work is only obtained from a man who sees his wealth increase in proportion to his efforts? All hymns sung in honor of private property can be reduced to this axiom. For it is remarkable that when economists, wishing to celebrate the blessings of property, show us how an unproductive, marshy, or stony soil is clothed with rich harvests when cultivated by the peasant proprietor, they in no wise prove their thesis in favor of private property. By admitting that the only guarantee not to be robbed of the fruits of your labor is to possess the instruments of labor, which is true, the economists only prove that man really produces most when he works in freedom when he has a certain choice in his occupations, when he has no overseer to impede him, and lastly, when he sees his work bringing in a profit to him and to others who work like him, but bringing in nothing to idlers. This is all we can deduct from their argumentation, and we maintain the same ourselves. As to the form of possession of the instruments of labor, they only mention it indirectly in their demonstration as a guarantee to the cultivator that he shall not be robbed of the profits of his yield, nor of his improvements. Besides, in support of their thesis in favor of private property against all other forms of possession, should not the economists demonstrate that under the form of communal property, land never produces such rich harvests as when the possession is private? But it is not so. In fact, the contrary has been observed. Take, for example, a commune in the canton of Vaud, in the winter time, when all the men of the village go to fell wood in the forest, which belongs to them all. It is precisely during these festivals of toil that the greatest ardor for work and the most considerable display of human energy are apparent. No salaried labor, no effort of a private owner can bear comparison with it. Or let us take a Russian village, when all its inhabitants mow a field belonging to the commune or farmed by it. There you will see what man can produce when he works in common for communal production. Comrades vie with one another in cutting the widest swath. Women bestir themselves in their wake so as not to be distanced by the mowers. It is a festival of labor in which a hundred people do work in a few hours that would not have been finished in a few days had they worked separately. What a sad contrast compared to the work of the isolated owner. In fact, We might quote scores of examples among the pioneers of America, in Swiss, German, Russian, and in certain French villages, 
or the work done in Russia by gangs of masons, carpenters, boatmen, fishermen, etc., who undertake a task and divide the produce or the remuneration among themselves, without it passing through the intermediary of middlemen. We could also mention the great communal hunts of nomadic tribes, and an infinite number of successful collective enterprises. And in every case we could show the unquestionable superiority of communal work, compared to that of the wage earner or the isolated private owner. Well-being, that is to say, the satisfaction of physical, artistic, and moral needs, has always been the most powerful stimulant to work. And when a hireling produces bare necessities with difficulty, a free worker, who sees ease and luxury increasing for him and for others in proportion to his efforts, spends infinitely far more energy and intelligence— and obtains first-class products in far greater abundance. The one feels riveted to misery, the other hopes for ease and luxury in the future. In this lies the whole secret. Therefore, a society aiming at the well-being of all, and at the possibility of all enjoying life in all its manifestations, will supply voluntary work which will be infinitely superior, and yield far more than work has produced up till now, under the goad of slavery, serfdom, or wagedom. Nowadays, whoever can load on others his share of labor indispensable to existence does so, and it is admitted that it will always be so. Now, work indispensable to existence is essentially manual. We may be artists or scientists, but none of us can do without things obtained by manual work, bread, clothes, roads, ships, light, heat, etc., And, moreover, however highly artistic or however subtly metaphysical are our pleasures, they all depend on manual labor. And it is precisely this labor, basis of life, that everyone tries to avoid. We understand perfectly well that it must be so nowadays. Because to do manual work now means in reality to shut yourself up for 10 or 12 hours a day in an unhealthy workshop and to remain riveted to the same task for twenty or thirty years, and maybe for your whole life. It means to be doomed to a paltry wage, to the uncertainty of the morrow, to want of work, often to destitution, more often than not to death in a hospital, after having worked forty years to feed, clothe, amuse, and instruct others than yourself and your children. It means to bear the stamp of inferiority all your life, because, whatever the politicians tell us, the manual worker is always considered inferior to the brain worker, and the one who has toiled ten hours in a workshop has not the time, and still less the means, to give himself the high delights of science and art, nor even to prepare himself to appreciate them. He must be content with the crumbs from the table of privileged persons. We understand that under these conditions manual labor is considered a curse of fate. We understand that all men have but one dream, that of emerging from or enabling their children to emerge from this inferior state, to create for themselves an independent position, which means what? To also live by other men's work. As long as there will be a class of manual laborers and a class of brain workers, black hands and white hands, it will be thus. What interest, in fact, can this depressing work have for the worker when he knows that the fate awaiting him from the cradle to the grave will be to live in mediocrity, poverty, and insecurity of the morrow. Therefore, when we see the immense majority of men take up their wretched task every morning, we are surprised at their perseverance, at their zeal for work, 
at the habit that enables them, like machines blindly obeying an impetus given, to lead this life of misery without hope for the morrow, without foreseeing ever so vaguely that someday they, or at least their children, will be part of a humanity rich in all the treasures of a bountiful nature, in all the enjoyments of knowledge, scientific and artistic creation, reserved today to a few privileged favorites. It is precisely to put an end to this separation between manual and brain work that we want to abolish wagedom, that we want the social revolution. Then work will no longer appear a curse of fate. It will become what it should be, the free exercise of all the faculties of man. Moreover, it is time to submit to a serious analysis this legend about superior work, supposed to be obtained under the lash of wagedom. It is enough to visit not the model factory and workshop that we find now and again, but ordinary factories, to conceive the immense waste of human energy that characterizes modern industry. For one factory more or less rationally organized, there are a hundred or more which waste men's labor, without a more substantial motive than that of perhaps bringing in a few pounds more per day to the employer. Here you see youths from 20 to 25 years of age, sitting all day long on a bench, their chests sunken in, feverishly shaking their heads and bodies to tie, with the speed of conjurers, the two ends of worthless scraps of cotton, the refuse of the lace looms. What progeny will these trembling and rickety bodies bequeath to their country? But they occupy so little room in the factory, and each of them brings me in sixpence a day, will say the employer. In an immense London factory you could see girls, bald at seventeen from carrying trays of matches on their heads from one room to another, when the simplest machine could wheel the matches to their tables. But it costs so little, the work of women who have no special trade. What is the use of a machine? When these can do no more, they will be easily replaced. There are so many in the street. On the steps of a mansion on an icy night, you will find a barefooted child asleep, with its bundle of papers in its arm. Child labor costs so little that it may well be employed, every evening, to sell ten penny worth of papers, of which the poor boy will receive a penny, or a penny halfpenny. And lastly, you may see a robust man tramping, dangling his arms. He has been out of work for months. Meanwhile, his daughter grows pale in the overheated vapors of the workshop for dressing stuffs, and his son fills blacking pots by hand or waits hours at the corner of a street till a passerby enables him to earn a penny. And so it is everywhere, from San Francisco to Moscow, and from Naples to Stockholm. The waste of human energy is the distinguishing and predominant trait of industry, not to mention trade, where it attains still more colossal proportions. What a sad satire is that name, political economy, given to the science of waste of energy under the system of wagedom. This is not all. If you speak to the director of a well-organized factory, he will naively explain to you that it is difficult nowadays to find a skillful, vigorous, and energetic workman who works with a will. Should such a man present himself among the twenty or thirty who call every Monday asking us for work, he is sure to be received, even if we are reducing the number of our hands. We recognize him at the first glance, and he is always accepted even though we have to get rid of an older and less active worker the next day. And the one who has just received notice to quit, and all those who receive it tomorrow, go to reinforce that immense reserve army of capital, workmen out of work, 
who are only called to the loom or the bench when there is pressure of work or to oppose strikers. And those others, the average workers that are the refuse of the better-class factories, they join the equally formidable army of aged and indifferent workers that continually circulates between the second-class factories, those which barely cover their expenses, and make their way in the world by trickery and snares laid for the buyer, and especially for the consumer in distant countries. And if you talk to the workmen themselves, you will soon learn that the rule in such factories is never to do entirely what you are capable of. Shoddy pay, shoddy work. This is the advice which the working man receives from his comrades upon entering such a factory. For the workers know that if in a moment of generosity they give way to the entreaties of an employer and consent to intensify the work in order to carry out a pressing order, this nervous work will be exacted in the future as a rule in the scale of wages. Therefore, in all such factories they prefer never to produce as much as they can. In certain industries, production is limited so as to keep up high prices, and sometimes the password, Kalkani, is given, which signifies bad work for bad pay. Wage work is surf work. It cannot, it must not, produce all that it could produce. And it is high time to disbelieve the legend which represents wagedom as the best incentive to productive work. If industry nowadays brings in a hundred times more than it did in the days of our grandfathers, it is due to the sudden awakening of physical and chemical sciences towards the end of the last century, not to the capitalist organization of wagedom, but in spite of that organization. Those who have seriously studied the question do not deny any of the advantages of communism, on condition, be it well understood, that communism be perfectly free, that is to say, anarchist. They recognize that work paid with money, even disguised under the name of labor notes, to workers' associations governed by the state, would keep up the characteristics of wagedom and would retain its disadvantages. They agree that the whole system would soon suffer from it, even if society came into possession of the instruments of production. And they admit that, thanks to integral education given to all children, to the laborious habits of civilized societies, with the liberty of choosing and varying their occupations and the attractions of work done by equals for the well-being of all, a communist society would not be wanting in producers, who would soon make the fertility of the soil triple and tenfold and give a new impulse to industry. This our opponents agree to. But the danger, they say, will come from that minority of loafers who will not work and will not have regular habits in spite of excellent conditions that make work pleasant. Today, the prospect of hunger compels the most refractory to move along with others. The one who does not arrive in time is dismissed. But a black sheep suffices to contaminate the whole flock, and two or three sluggish or refractory workmen lead the others astray and bring a spirit of disorder and rebellion into the workshop that makes work impossible, so that in the end we shall have to return to a system of compulsion that forces the ringleaders back into the ranks. And is not the system of wages paid in proportion to work performed, the only one that enables compulsion to be employed, without hurting the feelings of the worker? because all other means would imply the continual intervention of an authority that would be repugnant to free men. This, we believe, is the objection fairly stated. It belongs to the category of arguments which try to justify the state, the penal law, the judge, and the jailer. As there are people, a feeble minority, who will not submit to social customs, the authoritarians say, 
We must maintain magistrates, tribunals, and prisons, although these institutions become a source of new evils of all kinds. Therefore, we can only repeat what we have said so often concerning authority in general. To avoid a possible evil, you have recourse to means which in themselves are a greater evil, and become the source of those same abuses that you wish to remedy. For do not forget that it is wagedom, the impossibility of living otherwise than by selling your labor, which has created the present capitalist system, whose vices you begin to recognize. Let us also remark that this authoritarian way of reasoning is but a justification of what is wrong in the present system. Wagedom was not instituted to remove the disadvantages of communism. Its origin, like that of the state and private ownership, is to be found elsewhere. It is born of slavery and serfdom imposed by force, and only wears a more modern garb. Thus, the argument in favor of wagedom is as valueless as those by which they seek to apologize for private property and the state. We are, nevertheless, going to examine the objection and see if there is any truth in it. To begin with, is it not evident that if a society, founded on the principle of free work, were really menaced by loafers, it could protect itself without an authoritarian organization and without having recourse to wagedom? Let us take a group of volunteers, combining for some particular enterprise. Having its success at heart, they all will work with a will, save one of the associates, who is frequently absent from his post. Must they, on his account, dissolve the group, elect a president to impose fines, or maybe distribute markers for work done, as is customary in the academy? It is evident that neither the one nor the other will be done, but that someday the comrade who imperils their enterprise will be told, Friend, we should like to work with you, but as you are often absent from your post and you do your work negligently, we must part. Go and find other comrades who will put up with your indifference. This way is so natural that it is practiced everywhere nowadays, in all industries, in competition with all possible systems of fines, docking wages, supervision, etc. A workman may enter the factory at the appointed time, but if he does his work badly, if he hinders his comrades by his laziness or other defects, and they quarrel with him on that account, there is an end of it. He is compelled to leave the workshop. Authoritarians pretend that it is the almighty employer and his overseers who maintain regularity and quality of work in factories. In fact, in a somewhat complicated enterprise, in which the wares produced pass through many hands before being finished, it is the factory itself, the workmen as a unity, who see to the good quality of the work. Therefore, the best factories of British private industry have few overseers, far less on average than the French factories, and less than the British state factories. A certain standard of public morals is maintained in the same way. Authoritarians say it is due to rural guards, judges, and policemen, whereas in reality it is maintained in spite of judges, policemen, and rural guards. Many are the laws producing criminals, has been said long ago. Not only in industrial workshops do things go on this way. It happens everywhere, every day, on a scale that only bookworms have as yet no notion of. When a railway company, federated with other companies, fails to fulfill its engagements, when its trains are late and goods lie neglected at the stations, the other companies threaten to cancel the contract, and that threat usually suffices. It is generally believed, or at any rate it is taught, that commerce only keeps to its engagements from fear of lawsuits. Nothing of the sort. 
nine times in ten, the trader who has not kept his word will not appear before a judge. There, where trade is very great, as in London, the sole fact of having driven a creditor to bring a lawsuit suffices for the immense majority of merchants to refuse for good to have any dealings with a man who has compelled one of them to go to law. Then, why should means that are used today among mates in the workshop, traders, and railway companies not be made use of in a society based on voluntary work? Take, for example, an association stipulating that each of its members should carry out the following contract. We undertake to give you the use of our houses, stores, streets, means of transport, schools, museums, etc., on condition that, from 25 to 45 or 50 years of age, you consecrate four or five hours a day to some work recognized as necessary to existence. Choose yourself the producing groups which you wish to join, or organize a new group, provided that it will undertake to produce necessaries. And as for the remainder of your time, combine together with those you like for recreation, art, or science, according to the bent of your taste. Twelve or fifteen hundred hours of work a year, in a group producing food, clothes, or houses, or employed in public health, transport, etc., is all we ask of you. For this work, we guarantee to you all that these groups produce or will produce. But if not one of the thousands of groups of our federation will receive you, whatever be their motive, if you are absolutely incapable of producing anything useful, or if you refuse to do it, then live like an isolated man or like an invalid. If we are rich enough to give you the necessaries of life, we shall be delighted to give them to you. You are a man and you have the right to live. But as you wish to live under special conditions and leave the ranks, it is more than probable that you will suffer for it in your daily relations with other citizens. You will be looked upon as a ghost of bourgeois society, unless some friends of yours, discovering you to be a talent, kindly free you from all moral obligation toward society by doing necessary work for you. And lastly, if it does not please you, go and look for other conditions elsewhere in the wide world, or else seek adherence and organize with them on novel principles. We prefer our own. That is what could be done in a communal society in order to turn away sluggards if they became too numerous. We very much doubt that we need fear this contingency in a society really based on the entire freedom of the individual. In fact, in spite of the premium on idleness offered by private ownership of capital, the really lazy man, unless he is ill, is comparatively rare. Among workmen, it is often said that bourgeois are idlers. There are certainly enough of them, but they too are the exception. On the contrary, in every industrial enterprise, you are sure to find one or more bourgeois who work very hard. It is true that the majority of bourgeois profit by their privileged position to award themselves the least unpleasant tasks, and that they work under hygienic conditions of air, food, etc., which permit them to do their business without too much fatigue. But these are precisely the conditions which we claim for all workers, without exception. We must also say that if, thanks to their privileged position, rich people often make absolutely useless or even harmful work in society, nevertheless, the ministers, heads of departments, factory owners, traders, bankers, etc., subject themselves for a few hours a day to work which they find more or less tiresome, all preferring their hours of leisure to this obligatory work. And if, in nine cases out of ten, this work is fateful, they find it none the less tiring for that. But it is precisely because the middle class put forth a great energy, 
even in doing harm, knowingly or not, and defending their privileged position, that they have succeeded in defeating the landed nobility, and that they continue to rule the masses. If they were idlers, they would long since have ceased to exist, and would have disappeared like the aristocrats. In a society that would expect only four or five hours a day of useful, pleasant, and hygienic work, they would perform their task perfectly, and they certainly would not put up with the horrible conditions in which men toil nowadays without reforming them. If a Huxley spent only five hours in the sewers of London, rest assured that he would have found the means of making them as sanitary as his physiological laboratory. As to the laziness of the great majority of workers, only Philistine economists and philanthropists say such nonsense. If you ask an intelligent manufacturer, he will tell you that if workmen only put it into their heads to be lazy, all factories would have to be closed, for no measure of severity, no system of spying, would be of any use. You should have seen the terror caused in 1887 among British employers when a few agitators started preaching the Kalkani theory, for bad pay, bad work. Take it easy, do not overwork yourselves and waste all you can. They demoralize the worker, they want to kill the industry, cried those who formerly inveighed against the immorality of the worker and the bad quality of his work. But if the worker were what he is represented to be, namely the idler whom you have to continually threaten with dismissal from the workshop, what would the word demoralization signify? So, when we speak of a possible idleness, we must well understand that it is a question of a small minority in society. And before legislating for that minority, would it not be wise to study its origin? Whoever observes with an intelligent eye sees well enough that the child reputed lazy at school is often the one which does not understand what he is badly taught. Very often, too, it is suffering from cerebral anemia, caused by poverty and an anti-hygienic education. A boy who is lazy at Greek or Latin would work admirably were he taught in science, especially if taught by the medium of manual labor. A girl reported not at mathematics becomes the first mathematician of her class if she by chance meets somebody who can explain to her the elements of arithmetic she did not understand. And a workman, lazy in the workshop, cultivates his garden at dawn while gazing at the rising sun, and will be at work again at nightfall when all nature goes to its rest. Somebody said that dirt is matter in the wrong place. The same definition applies to nine-tenths of those called lazy. They are people gone astray in a direction that does not answer to their temperament nor to their capacities. In reading the biography of great men, we are struck with the number of idlers among them. They were lazy as long as they had not found the right path and afterwards laborious to excess. Darwin, Stevenson, and many others belong to this category of idlers. Very often, the idler is but a man to whom it is repugnant to make all his life the eighteenth part of a pin, or the hundredth part of a watch, while he feels he has exuberant energy which he would like to expend elsewhere. Often, too, he is a rebel who cannot submit to being fixed all his life to a workbench in order to procure a thousand pleasures for his employer while knowing himself to be far the less stupid of the two, and knowing his only fault to be that of having been born in hovel, instead of coming into the world in a castle. Lastly, a good many idlers do not know the trade by which they are compelled to earn their living, seeing the imperfect thing made by their own hands, striving vainly to do better, and perceiving that they will never succeed on account of the bad habits of work already acquired, 
They begin to hate their trade, and, not knowing any other, hate work in general. Thousands of workmen and artists who are failures suffer from this cause. On the other hand, he who since his youth has learned to play the piano well, to handle the planes well, the chisel, the brush, or the file, so that he feels that what he does is beautiful, will never give up the piano, the chisel, or the file. He will find pleasure in his work which does not tire him, as long as he is not overdriven. Under the one name, idleness, a series of results due to different causes have been grouped, of which each one could be a source of good, instead of being a source of evil to society. Like all questions concerning criminality and related to human faculties, facts have been collected having nothing in common with one another. They say laziness or crime, without giving themselves the trouble to analyze their cause. They are in haste to punish them, without inquiring if the punishment itself does not contain a premium on laziness or crime. This is why a free society, seeing the number of idlers increasing in its midst, would no doubt think of looking for the cause of laziness in order to suppress it, before having recourse to punishment. When it is a case, as we have already mentioned, of simple bloodlessness, then, before stuffing the brain of a child with science, nourish this system so as to produce blood, strengthen him, and, that he shall not waste his time, take him to the country or to the seaside. There, teach him in the open air, not in books, geometry by measuring the distance to a spire or the height of a tree, natural sciences while picking flowers and fishing in the sea, physical science while building the boat he will go to fish in. But for mercy's sake, do not fill his brain with sentences and dead languages. Do not make an idler of him. Such a child has neither order nor regular habits. Let first the children inculcate order among themselves, and later on, the laboratory, the workshop, work done in a limited space, with many tools about, will teach them method. But do not make disorderly beings out of them by your school, whose only order is the symmetry of its benches, and which, true image of the chaos in its teachings, will never inspire anybody with the love of harmony, of consistency, and method in work. Do you not see that by your methods of teaching, framed by a ministry for eight million scholars who represent eight million different capacities, you only impose a system good for mediocrities, conceived by an average of mediocrities? Your school becomes a university of laziness, as your prison is a university of crime. Make the school free. Abolish your university grades. Appeal to the volunteers of teaching. Begin that way, instead of making laws against laziness which only serve to increase it. Give the workman who is compelled to make a minute particle of some object, who is stifled at his little tapping machine, which he ends by loathing, give him the chance of tilling the soil, felling trees in the forest, sailing the seas in the teeth of a storm, dashing through space on an engine. But do not make an idler of him by forcing him all his life to attend to a small machine, to plow the head of a screw, or to drill the eye of a needle. Suppress the cause of idleness, and you may take it for granted that few individuals will really hate work, especially voluntary work, and that there will be no need to manufacture a code of laws on their account.